Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 270. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Black Panther Wakanda Forever, directed by Ryan Coogler, written by Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole, produced by Kevin Feige and Nate Moore. Black Panther Wakanda Forever is dedicated to Chadwick Boseman. Now, before our podcast begins, before our spoiler review begins, Want to let you know about Fan Show Plus, where you can hear us talk about extra MCU topics like some recent trailers, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special, or some news like James Gunn running things. Oh, speaking of that holiday special, James Gunn running things now for the distinguished competition for DC Studios and Warner Brothers Discovery. So check that out at Fan Show Plus. Where can you find that? At patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts if you search for the MCU Fan Show channel or Fan Show Plus, you can find it there and subscribe and receive those episodes. Also, make sure you're following us in those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Twitter and Instagram. If you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. And now, on with our show. How you doing, Paul Herman? Man, I am doing well. I had a really uh, fun time today in my second viewing of uh, Wakanda Forever. I sat next to uh, two young gentlemen who were watching the film by themselves, and uh, their names were Daniel and Rainier, and uh, they were 12 years old or 13. I think they're around that age. So if you guys are listening, what's up, guys? It was cool to experience the movie with you for the second time. Well, for my second time, your guys' first. And uh, they, they were very vocal. And they're uh, and how uh, much they like the movie. So that was a very interesting uh, thing to kind of see the the film through a, a younger person's eyes and made me feel really old when he told me he was born in 2012. So uh, <laughs> he's like, I so he, he, he asked, I was telling him about the podcast, obviously, and, and yeah. everything, and we're talking, and he said it was favorite movie. I'm like, oh, back in 2012, Avengers movie, probably is my favorite. You know, he started explaining, he was, oh, that's when I was born. I'm like, God, I hate you. Uh, <laughs> you know, so. That was weird, but no, it was cool talking to you guys, Daniel and uh, and uh, Rainier. So yeah, shout out to you guys if you guys are listening, and uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoy the show. Yeah, hope you guys enjoy the show. Glad to hear that you enjoyed the movie, and I don't know, 10-year-olds don't make me feel old. It's really more of the group that's like, oh yeah, I... You know, I saw Iron Man on DVD or Blu-ray or something as opposed to in theaters. Or they were a kid. They grew up with the Infinity Saga as opposed to, mm. I don't know, already being an adult like we were. Uh, I mean, right. by age, adults, uh, <laughs> when those gotcha. movies were coming out. But, uh, hey, that's what keeps it going. Stories for mm. uh, that, that keep this whole thing going now from the Infinity Saga to mm. the Multiverse Saga and Phase 4 of that Multiverse Saga and of the MCU, which wraps up here with Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. And I'm so happy that we get a chance to talk about this movie as we just love having the opportunity to talk about the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe here on the podcast. Um, But obviously, this is a very different show. It's a very special show, very different film, very special film. As I mentioned at the top, this one was dedicated, of course, to Chadwick Boseman, who we lost uh, tragically back in August of 2020. And I I think that's where I, I would just start at the top and and say, you know, if you're looking for comparisons of which one was better, the first film or the second film and any of those things, this may not necessarily be the podcast for you, although maybe that'll come up. I don't know. But I think it's kind of impossible to really compare the two films. They're obviously doing very different things. And this one has uh, an incredible task uh, ahead of it that 
really, I think, challenged it in a way that we've never really seen from a film in the MCU or just movies in general, where you have to not only work as a movie, but also work as this collective grieving process for the people who made this movie and dedicated it to their friend Chadwick Boseman, but also for us as an audience and for everyone who loved, looked up to, was inspired by Chadwick Boseman for what he did as King T'Challa, the Black Panther, for what he did just as Chadwick Boseman himself in real life, all that he meant to so many people and to have to honor that while also moving things forward and having a story that is all its own and also is developing things, continuing to build out the world of Wakanda for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, introduce an entirely other civilization with to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There are so many things, so many tasks that are there for this movie. And somehow, thanks in large part to, as Kevin Feige aptly described him, the singular talent that is director and, and co-writer Ryan Coogler, who just... Paul, you and I were texting about this as just part of your initial reaction to the movie. I'm just astounded by this. Before we even get into the specifics, just looking at what he achieved with the first film, all of the impossible tasks that were put before him with this film, and Mm -hmm. to see him succeed on so many different levels and to do so well in so many different aspects of all the many things, as I described, that this movie had to do and just nailing all of those tasks, it's unbelievable to me. This is a a truly special achievement for Ryan Coogler as a filmmaker, and I'm sure probably for him, hopefully he feels it just as a person and as a friend of Chadwick Boseman. In all of those ways, uh, Ryan Coogler, and it wasn't just him. I mean, this was obviously a labor of love from everybody involved. Coogler, the cast, the crew, everybody at Marvel Studios, Nate Moore, Kevin Feige, uh, they all came together and wanted to make a film that was worthy of uh, the individual they were dedicating it to in Chadwick Boseman. Um, and I think they absolutely hit that mark. It's it's really strange as I've, you know, for, for the most part, this movie has been pretty much, you know, well liked, you know, for the most part. And I do see a lot of people that I respect, too. And this is not like a detriment to, you know, I'm not talking down to anybody because you have your opinions. But there's a lot of people who really still feel they should have recast T'Challa. And, you know, for me, I, I honestly, I would have went with any direction that I think that Marvel would have went with, to be honest. Um, but you brought up a good point or, you know, some of you said about, you know, Ryan Coogler, his friend Chadwick Boseman. I obviously, I don't think Marvel and, and, and especially, um, Coogler didn't make this decision without having some kind of understanding of of one what would he wanted and what's best for everything all to everything altogether including chadwick and his thoughts on that process and i don't think he would just you know, honor his friend you know either way and you know and i don't think to be i don't know chad chadwick bozeman at all i don't think he probably would be anti them recasting either but the one thing that i would say about this whole experience is just it the themes of the film are so powerful and that that I just think you honor you honor Chadwick I think so much and 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 and, and again we'll get into the, all, all the other things we can get into in a little bit by doing it this way and it's just it's hard for me to think that 
people are still you know really bent on we got to recast the child you know, all this stuff and again I, i'm not against i wasn't ever against it but i just think and i'm just going to tell everyone right here i think we've got the right decision of what they what they went with and i think it's the strongest decision and and be honest sean this is the bravest decision because i think the easiest thing would have been to say and again i'm not saying this would, would have been the wrong thing or if you think this is this is wrong but the easiest thing would have been to let's recast them and 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 that's nothing wrong with that and they, they recast you know thunderbolt ross with harrison ford you know and so there's but i think what's so crazy is coogler and marvel decided to say you know what we're not going to do the, t- the the very the obvious thing. We're going to go a, a different route, and it's and it's different. And there and again, when you do that, there's a lot. I mean, there, there's a lot of re, re not redoing, but there's just so much you have to redo and like re, kind of rethink and and you know you have to reorganize everything and recreate it from the inside out. And I think by doing that, you're able to also I think give the fans and I think just a different level of kind of kind of a film that I don't think people ne- were necessarily ready for. Even they, even though the, I think the trailer did a great, tra- I only watched one trailer to be honest, uh, because I wanted to avoid everything for this movie. Even though it did a phenomenal job of explaining and showing us what this movie is going to be about. I still don't think people were prepared, Sean. I, I still don't. No, I, I don't, think, I don't I was. think, no, I definitely was not. I mean, I think you go into it knowing certain things like, okay, they are going to address the, fictional death of T'Challa in a way that, you know, obviously covers and addresses the real life death of Chadwick Boseman, since he's not going to be here to play T'Challa going forward. And so, you know, it's going to have that, you know, that grief is going to be a part of the story, but that really doesn't knowing it. And then actually watching the movie and feeling it are two very different things. And I think that's where, um, I think that's where, where the movie, I think, became really special for me is that, yes, it, it delivered in that respect, but also it was still its own great story unto itself. And it was not to say that it wouldn't have been worthy just focusing on and celebrating the life and legacy of Chadwick Boseman, but it still had to be its own new story. And it also did things like introducing new characters and propelling them forward. And that, I think, is also part part and parcel with the legacy of the first movie and what Chadwick Boseman did so well in that 2018 film. I know it wasn't his first time playing Black Panther. Obviously, he was introduced in Captain America Civil War in 2016. But one of the things I love most about Black Panther and one of the things we commented on when we reviewed that film almost five years ago was how great it was as an ensemble piece. And so even though the movie is called Black Panther and even though it is you know, Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa, number one on the call sheet and all of those things, and it's his, quote-unquote, his movie. It really created so much space for so many others. Denai Guerrero as Okoye, Letitia Wright as Shuri, Lupita Nyong'o as Nakia, Winston Duke as M'Baku, even for Martin Freeman as Everett Ross. Like It really just elevated so many characters simultaneously, and I think we saw that happen in this movie that... Chadwick Boseman was the kind of spirit who created space for other people and lifted them up. And that's what this franchise has been doing. That's what it did in the first film. That's what it does again in this film in a whole new and exciting way. And I absolutely love that. I mean, as far as the recasting issue, to me, it's a separate issue from 
the an evaluation or assessment of this movie. A movie should yeah. be evaluated, critiqued, assessed for what it is, not necessarily what it what what it can't be or what it wasn't based on a, a decision you do or do not agree with. I totally understand, and I agree with a lot of that sentiment as far as recasting T'Challa in the sense that, yes, this is a very valuable character for a lot of people, especially kids, and they should be able to still have that character, and doesn't the character doesn't necessarily have to be taken away from them, even with the real-life tragedy that has removed the actor uh, who initially played this character on screen, like so many other iconic superheroes. Yes, there is an argument to have somebody else step into the role and carry it forward. I totally understand all, all of that. I agree with a lot of those sentiments. At the same time, I agree with and understand why Ryan Coogler and Kevin Feige yeah. and Nate Moore and the cast of this movie, why so many of them maybe decided, and especially with Ryan Coogler, decided that wasn't the right thing to do. And rather than me try to speak for Ryan Coogler, what I would just say is listen to, if you haven't already, there is an official Black Panther podcast, and mm. I highly, from Proximity Media, which is Ryan Coogler's company, and obviously in association with Marvel Studios, it's uh, hosted by Tanahasi Coates, who wrote Black Panther for a number of years in the comic books, was a friend of Chadwick Boseman's, is a friend of Ryan Coogler's, and the first full episode is out now, and Ryan Coogler actually does explain why he didn't cool. recast. And just to quickly summarize, because you should just go listen to the whole episode, not that it's entirely about that part of it, but he actually mentions how, as a director, his job is to get everybody on board with making it to really propel ideas that Ryan Coogler, as the director, finds truthful, what he sees truth in. And for him, somebody else stepping into that role wasn't necessarily going to ring true. And I understand completely why he would feel that way. He was day in, day out there with Chadwick Boseman uh, inhabiting this character of T'Challa of the Black Panther. And that was a, a truth for Ryan Coogler, as it was for many of us. And so for Ryan Coogler, uh, for Coogler to feel like it wasn't necessarily uh, the best move to, um, it wasn't necessarily the best move to recast and to actually allow the story to honor the real life legacy and also, also acknowledge the truth of the weight of the tragedy of Chadwick's passing by making it T'Challa's passing in the story. All of that has, of course, tremendous value, not just in the storytelling, but as I said, even the emotional catharsis for everyone, those making it, those watching it. And so I really would encourage everybody to check that out, um, because really, when we're talking about this movie, I think there is, people are going to have whatever conversations they're going to have, obviously, but I think for me, it's it's a separate thing. There's the conversation about recasting. There's the conversation about this movie and how great it is. And it was pretty great. And I, I didn't go into this movie just thinking that I was for sure absolutely going to love it. Granted, I have a tendency to really like these things. I have a tendency to like most <laughs> MCU movies you and shows. Say. I have a tendency to uh, I have certainly been a big fan of the characters that have revolved around, uh, that this franchise has revolved around. I am a big fan of Ryan Coogler before he was in the MCU, and obviously with what he's done in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I was inclined to like this movie, but at the same time, I was wondering exactly how they would be able to balance all of the things that were there at yeah. stake within this movie, more things than really 
any movie, any piece of uh, fiction should ever really have to deal with um, or, or encounter. And yet we see this end result with Black Panther Wakanda Forever, uh, which I think is just a, a truly spectacular film that has some performances, uh, a couple in particular that we'll highlight that I just think were so incredibly powerful and moving that I absolutely loved. But let's go ahead and uh, in true MCU fan show, long-winded fashion, here we are, you know, 15, 16 minutes into the show. We haven't even talked about the first scene yet, but uh, here we go. So the first scene is the death of the king. And so we are in Shuri's lab. We are hearing Grio, voiced by Trevor Noah, providing the updates on King T'Challa's heartbeat. Uh, it is, of course, slowing down. Meanwhile, Shuri is trying to synthesize something. What is that? It is a synthetic heart-shaped herb, because remember, Killmonger bur uh, burned all of them back in the first film with the belief on Shuri if she can synthesize this and she can get it right, that this is what will save her brother. Unfortunately, tragically, time runs out. And she sees her mother there, Ramonda, leading Shuri to ask Rio where her brother's heart rate is. And it is, the uh, as Ramonda tells her, he is with the ancestors. And I love that line because that, I'm pretty sure Ryan Coogler and his tribute to Chadwick Boseman shortly after Boseman's passing also wrote about that, how it was hard for Coogler to comprehend the, the idea that Chadwick Boseman was with the ancestors. But so I, I like that he kept that phrasing and had Ramonda say it uh, here to Shuri. And this leads us to the funeral. And that based on the going back to that official Black Panther podcast, there were some similarities between the real life private ceremony for Chadwick Boseman and the ceremony that we see here held for King T'Challa uh, in Wakanda. But I think the way this was one of the things that where I was I did have questions about how they would handle this, because obviously the death was going to have to be done off screen. And that can be very tricky. A lot of times when you have it done off screen, you don't get a chance as an audience member to feel the weight of it. I felt the weight of it. And I think that was something that really was um, uh, that, that really shocked me in a way. And, and it in many ways it shouldn't have, but nevertheless, as I said, knowing what's coming and then actually having it happen and feeling it, very different things. And this was uh, the right out, right away the first example of that within the movie. And really, it's a credit to the performances of, uh, of Angela Bassett and, of course, of Letitia Wright as Shuri. They were the ones who had to really portray this and, and bring us into that space and, and make us feel something that we as an audience just weren't able to see. And, and of course, it's impossible not to think about the real life parallels as these individuals in real life would have found out about the passing of their friend, Chadwick Boseman. But it's all mixed in there and it's all part of it. And I like that this movie didn't really shy away from that. It wasn't really afraid to just go into that space. Even the, the way that King T'Challa dies. They don't actually say the word cancer, but they do say an illness. They mentioned throughout the movie that it was an illness that he he suffered in silence, which we know that Chadwick Boseman largely did. He had cancer for most and knew he had cancer for most of the time that he was playing Black Panther in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, including while he was making that first Black Panther film. And obviously through Avengers Infinity War, through Avengers Endgame. And so I, I like that they they made that because in, in so many ways, 
Part of what made Chadwick Boseman so successful as T'Challa is he really just kind of was T'Challa. And so to allow that, you know, T'Challa's final years and, and that struggle that he had with that illness to be very reflective of what Chadwick Boseman went through and, and how he went about it. All of that was just all of that was just incredibly powerful and sad and tragic and um, and I also loved the, the the very quiet Marvel Studios tribute that they had to T'Challa, um, of course for the Marvel Studios logo, reminiscent of what they did uh, a couple years ago after Chadwick's passing. They had changed the Marvel Studios logo on Black Panther on Disney Plus. I think they've since changed it back, um, but now having this version of the, the Marvel Studios logo um, for, dedicated to Chadwick Boseman. It was all, um, it, it was beautiful. I mean, it was hard and it, it was incredibly sad, but also it, it was beautiful thanks to the, really thanks to the performances. I, I can't say enough about what Angela Bassett and Letitia Wright did here. Yeah. I, you know, I stayed away from spoilers and everything, so I had no idea how anything was going to be handled. And I wasn't, I wouldn't have been shocked if um, they went different routes, but the fact it, the whole movie is leaned into this idea of, you know, of loss and how you, you know, and where you channel that loss at it, it you need to set that up for, you know, the right reasons. Because I, the one thing I, I love about this movie so much is the themes are so universal. And I have always said about any kind of story you tell the, the themes of the film or, or a comic or book or whatever you're consuming of a story, the theme has to really, you know, hit home. It has to be universal for anyone, whether, you know, for whatever, and the nice thing about about this movie, and and, and I say nice in a way of like it's it, you can relate. Um, unfortunately, a lot of us can relate to this, and the fact that there's there's it hits you home right away, and it never it never tries to steer away from you know the reality of the situation because those those things that we that happen like the, they happen in the midst of of chaos, you know, trav you know tragedy strikes. And you see that right away and, and the, mo the, the times of dealing with that right away and you, you feel helpless. You know, you have everything, you know, you know, Shuri had everything to her disposal but couldn't save her brother. And 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 again, how that's tied into the movie later on, too. Right. And I think that there's there's so much that Kugler uses this to propel the story going forward of overall and just to get the characters where they where they need to go for you know afterwards, but also telling really important messages, and it's all set up through this through this. And you have and really Shuri is you know our vehicle you know is the audience essentially. She's you know her closeness with her brother and everything is all is all there, and it's all of us who are huge fans of the MCU and or or whatever in watching this movie. We all channel through Shuri. And seeing all that is we feel every hit that she goes through because we all, you know, that whole thing, the montage or whatever of, of uh, the very beginning with the Marvel Studios logo, it just was silence. It's just the whole thing is silence. Right. I mean, it's just like, ugh. and there, I, I, there was a, a lot of choices in here, Sean, that of, of music, of not playing music. And it was awesome. I loved it. And it really adds the tension and the sadness and, and, and honestly, the realness of, you know, the, the realistic, uh, what relatability, cause we don't have fancy music playing to emphasize dramatic moments in our life. We just have this, you know, sometimes there's nothing there's just, there's, or there's background noise. And I like that they went a lot with that and they really try to make those moments feel real and relatable. And for us to really kind of feel those moments. So then that we can 
I think, feel the moments later on when they need to hit for like, you know, when the characters need to turn or, or learn from it. So I think it also I, just allowed it to feel spiritual as well. Yeah. yeah and good point. Yeah. I, I think it just sometimes sitting in the silence of it, though, is that's the way to feel it. And because uh, I, I think in some ways you, you remove that because there are times there are moments where especially in times of great loss and, you know, when you're focusing on a, a specific tragedy, especially when it's so deeply personal to you as it is for these characters. And, and look, as it is for the audience with someone who meant so much to the audience, both in the fictional story and in the real world, that even if there was music, even if there was noise, you wouldn't hear it. You know, when you have those moments and everything just kind of blocks out and you're focused on, uh, the weight of what you're feeling, but better to just remove that and allow the silence to just kind of take root and you just feel it in that moment, which I think was uh, a great way to, uh, really a great way to do it. And I think, I, I really just can't say enough about how how good I thought this opening was because I think this was going to be one of the hardest things to do in this movie and yet what they were able to achieve and um it, it just it, it worked on every level that it possibly could have and you know it is a, a testament to the skills of the actors of ryan coogler to everybody involved in this who really did uh, such a great job with this opening which really just sets the tone for uh, an incredible film that is uh, about to follow and obviously this is the start of it um, the next big scene is this was a scene that they showed and that I reacted so strongly to from D23 Expo, which is the scene at the UN. Uh, it's one year later. We, we get a little bit of a time jump after the passing of King T'Challa. And it's a UN meeting. Queen Ramonda has been summoned. She is now the sovereign ruler of Wakanda as, uh, as well, restored on the throne. So as she was presumably uh, during the blip is what it kind of sounds like. But um, she is there and she's being questioned by Representative Richard uh, Schiff, playing the Secretary of State for the United States, uh, who is asking about, uh, and of course, somebody from, I think, France as well. They're asking about vibranium and they're scolding Wakanda for not sharing vibranium and all of those things. And Angela Bassett just unleashes. And I think you could really pick any scene any scene you want that Angela Bassett is in in this movie, and that's the clip you play during the Oscars because she should be nominated for Best Supporting Actors at the Oscars, and if she isn't, let's just forget the whole thing. Um, and really, I mean, I don't know. Got to see the rest of the what happens this year, but my pick to win, doesn't that doesn't mean anything, by the way. I picked plenty of actors in Marvel movies over the years who I think deserved Academy recognition, and they did not get it. I feel like Angela Bassett has a shot, though, and deservedly so. Because this scene, one of many that you could choose from as a clip to show the power of this performance, but I was moved by it watching it at D23 Expo, even better now to be seeing it in its entirety in context as part of the entire movie where she speaks up and talks about, you know, vibranium isn't really the threat here. The threat is you and not wanting vibranium to be shared. They're not going to share vibranium under any circumstance because the folks in this room, they perform, uh, perform civility as she calls it, but she knows what Wakanda knows what they say, what they whisper uh, behind closed doors in the hallways of their leadership back within their own countries. 
that Wakanda is vulnerable because the king is dead, the Black Panther is gone, uh, they've lost their protector, and as this is happening, we are cutting with an attack. Uh, as we see that at one of the Wakandan outreach centers, there is a mercenary unit that is attacking. They want to get vibranium. Unfortunately, they run into the Dora Milaje. So we get a great action sequence, which, which is just the Dora Milaje absolutely unleashing hell on these guys. Denai Guerrero, of course, back as General Okoye, leader of that group. group. Florence Kasumba is back as Io. We're meeting in this scene Michaela Cole's Aneka, uh, who we'll see, we will see as one of the Midnight Angels later on in the movie, and also introduces this idea of uh, Okoye, who... Big, big fan of tradition, sometimes too big of a, uh, of a fan of tradition, as we saw in the first film, and that will come up in this movie. But uh, we already see that push and pull of Shuri's modern inventions, which Anika is using, but uh, Okoye prefers the classic spear of the Dora Milaje. So I liked all that. The action of that was good, but also they're doing uh, good things to really show character and, and reintroducing certain concepts and ideas about these characters. But the power of this scene, it's all in Angela Bassett's performance where she essentially just says, like, okay, we've got the evidence of what you've done. We're uploading it to everyone. Oh, and who are the attackers? Here, let's go ahead and introduce them and brings them into the room and has them kneel and essentially lets everybody off the hook to a certain extent, saying that, look, this is us. This is us being gracious. This is us being peaceful toward you, uh, that we are returning these mercenaries to you. Um, But this is your warning that uh, Wakanda is not... Uh, Wakanda is not helpless here. Wakanda is ready to defend itself, to defend Vibranium, and protect that very powerful resource from those who would wield it uh, irresponsibly, as they've shown in their actions just he- uh, right here. And it's Angela Bassett at uh, at full strength in, in all of this. She looked amazing. Of course, Ruth E. Carter back. Uh, Oscar winner Ruth E. Carter back as the costume designer in this. But... Um, Queen Ramonda is just an MVP of this movie, starting right here and now, although already was there for uh, the opening scene with the funeral. But, man, Angela Bassett, this is going to come up a lot in this podcast and just how special this performance was. Yeah, uh, it's crazy to me that in a, in a movie f- like filled the brim of beautiful women, that Angela Bassett at 64 is maybe still takes the, the top of them. Like as far as like the, the, the pretty, it's crazy how beautiful she is still at 60. It's She's incredible. I um, mean, she just blows me away when I see her. I'm just like, dang man, I think she's, I've been, I've always had a crush on Angela Bassett. Hasn't changed for a long time. And she's incredible. Um, she, yeah, this whole scene is so powerful for so many different reasons. I mean, obviously she, she's, you know, it's a great written scene because it catches up with what's going on because it's one year later and it's establishing the fact that they don't have a protector. They, they're not helpless, but that symbol that everyone was afraid of, right? That the Chala had established as the black Panther. That is again, the superhero idea was gone and everyone thinks, Oh, now they're vulnerable. And obviously they're establishing that's not the case, et cetera, et cetera. And that like, they're not just going to be taken advantage of. And I like, that was a great written scene because you're foreshadowing what's going to come. Cause I think they, cause it's established here that, you know, everyone thinks that, well, you need to do this. You need to do here. And, and everyone thinks that they can, you know, they can take from them and that's not the case. And, and on, but obviously you need to have that, that clear cut, like definitive, you know, even though she's a, you know, queen, um, the queen is a, is a valid leader, 
their symbol is important, I think. And I think that's also establishing there too, but they Mm -hmm. aren't helpless. And a great action scene too, to boot. I mean, it really, you know, one of the things I I liked um, about the first Black Panther movie, it was good, good action. But I felt like this one really upped its game in so many different levels. But this opening scene was a great establishing idea of like a visual way of saying, we're not helpless, but they are missing their their icon. But and this is where Wakanda is at this moment. So you are able to get the audience after an emotional, you know, beat up basically. Then going into like, okay, let's get the get you know the people who want action. Let's do that in a in a in a very you know let's do some drama with some action together. And it's it, it's a really it's honestly really well done to be honest. And the music start. I mean, and by the way, the music in this movie is incredible like i i think ludwig just yeah. went nuts on this movie another oscar and, winner from the first film ludwig Göransson. yeah his his score in this and obviously like he he had to do so much more because you're introducing the music of uh of talokan and so you're going through mm-hmm. all of that plus adding these new sounds to wakanda also preserving what's iconic about wakanda mm-hmm. within the music and He's just speaking of singular talents, like he's just he's just special. Yeah. And I, I think when yeah. we talk about original scores, again going, we get Oscar time again. Uh, yeah, I, I think you look at him. Hannah Beekler is the production designer in this movie, another auction uh, uh, auction Oscar winner from the very first film. It's amazing to see what they've put together and the way the score has evolved and just expanded to an entirely different civilization and yeah. culture within, uh, as we'll see or in here, more importantly, later on in the movie. I, I agree with you. It's just it's so good. And but it, and, and yeah. I think, you know, talking about themes, though, because Paul loves his themes. I love me. So like this is what lays the groundwork for it in a lot of ways. So we mm-hmm. talk about the grief and the loss, but there's also the different ways that Wakanda and Talokan approach the idea of protecting themselves. And you already have this contrast and you don't even know that you have it yet because you haven't, we haven't met Namor yet and we don't, haven't seen his stance on things and his perspective on the world and how he protects his people compared to how Wakanda is doing it. Obviously Namor's response to this would be very different. First off, he's never in that room. uh, And even if he were, those mercenaries aren't making it back alive. Um, he might be delivering heads of those mercenaries to that room if he were ever going to be in it in the first place. And so I think what you see with Ramonda is somebody who's trying to rise above that, like have Wakanda defend itself, but also at the same time show they are not the same as their attackers, that Wakanda actually is civil. They're not performing civility as uh, some of these groups within some of these nations belonging to the UN are. And so setting themselves apart really feeds into what's ultimately going to become the conflict between these two civilizations in Wakanda and Talokan, because obviously their approach is very, very different. And I, I think that it's it's great to see Ramonda's perspective on it, but also just just because Wakanda can be merciful, just because Wakanda mm-hmm. uh, is going to rise above this doesn't make them defenseless it doesn't make them any less powerful because they just showed what they could be what they could do in the way that they defended themselves here and obviously there is now international tension with wakanda because everybody believes wakanda is now on edge about the threats to their vibranium supply 
uh, which is going to make Wakanda the chief suspect of what's about to happen in the Atlantic Ocean. We find out later it's a joint mission of Navy SEALs, CIA, so Americans uh, with Dr. Graham, played by Lake Bell. Nice to see her in live action. She's the voice of Natasha Romanoff, a.k.a. Black Widow, in the Marvel Studios What If animated series. Here she is in this scene uh, for uh, in Black Panther Wakanda Forever in live action form. Uh, a short-lived role, but at least she got to be there in live action. So what's going on in the ocean? Well, they have themselves a vibranium detector. It has found some in the ocean, and as they send the search party down, some really creepy things happen with a phantom jellyfish, and it gets kind of scary. Love the scary tone of this. I don't know. There's so many tone shifts in this movie, and they all work, and they all work in harmony with one another. Like, when I talk about this movie, did surprise me with it is darker in a lot of ways than I would have expected. I expected the emotional weight, the heft of the grief, to be a part of this, but there's also just some plainly dark things that happen uh, in this movie, and this sequence is an example of it, where we really see the threat of Talokan, even if we do not know exactly who or what they are or where they come from yet, but we see the divers being taken out, we hear a siren song, and people are jumping off of this, uh, you know, of this drilling station, um, and I I love that. I don't know if that's part of the score that uh, I guess that counts as part of the score for Ludwig Göransson. Um, but that was uh, that music, that siren song, I-, I thought was beautiful and hypnotic, just as it was supposed to be based on the effect that it was having. Um, but everything. And then when we see the attack, when we see uh, Atuma and the other uh, uh, and we see the others from from Talokan as they're attacking And they just, they look unstoppable, they look unbeatable, like they get shot and they just keep on going. And even when it looks like Dr. Graham, Lake Bell has made the escape, then we get our introduction to Namor and we don't necessarily see him in full. It's basically dark, it's silhouetted, but the action is there, shows the power level. This is just such a strong introduction. And I like the way that this movie, Paul, gave Namor arguably three introductions right because it's the it's this action sequence mm-hmm. that shows the power level how formidable he is just on a physical level as well as the army that he has and then also the introduction with just how he carries himself when he first introduces himself to Ramonda and Shuri shortly after this but then of course talking to Shuri and going through his whole history the way we get these stages of this introduction to this character the way this is all mapped out and paced throughout this movie, I thought was really, really well done. But this one in particular, where first things first, we got to give you some hint, and it's a very scary hint at what people are going to be dealing with, what the, the Wakandans are going to be dealing with when we see this heavily armed military unit just easily dispatched by Namor and his army. And I, I thought this scene was was really great. It was a little scary in a you know fun kind of way. It just not at all what I was expecting from a Namor introduction. Because um, I don't know, every time I see Namor in comic book panels, you think of it's like bright coming in off the sun and the beach and the ocean and whatever. Like this very dark introduction, literally and figuratively dark introduction to Namor, I thought was so good. Put a pin in that for that that dark introduction we'll, we'll get into that i one thing you touched on just a minute ago that i thought was pretty on point which i think is a strength of the movie is that the tonal shifts are very there's a lot of tonal shifts in this movie and 
you brought up the whole dark aspect of um, dark, you know, kind of tone and things, things like that, like kind of, you know, just kind of a setting kind of idea, like, and, and not just like it's at night, but just like kind of like this real, like, just there's a mood, a dark mood to it, you know? And I really appreciated that because I think that there's just because you're dealing with grief doesn't always make it dark. I mean, it's not like uh, it's sunshines and rainbows by any means, but there's there's certain ways you could take that tone. Right. And I think they I like the fact that it never settled on one kind of tone. And I think that kind of helps the movie a lot, to be honest. It It helps me. It helps me keep it engaged with it uh, because I think that it. Because I don't think life is always the very more consistent thing, right? And I think that one of the things and that grief I, is not a consistent thing. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things I, I love about modern um, films recently, is, you know, and I'm going to bring up the Batman for a minute because I think there's a little bit of comparisons with the Batman that I'm going to compare with this. And I've seen complaints say that Pete, this movie is too long. And, it, and again, I have a point with this because it goes with what you were saying a second ago. You talked about the tonal shifts. With tonal shifts, you need to have the ability to make those shifts, right? So that means time. Time, you let things breathe a little bit. And that's one of the things I love about the Batman. And a lot of people said, you know, you could edit that movie, sure. I understand you could take things out. I think this is no different. I think there's some things you could probably trim up a little bit to get a little bit more of a a, a shorter runtime. But I, for one, really appreciate it because when I go to a movie – I don't want to just sit there and leave real quick. That's just not me. If I'm going to spend my hard-earned money, I want to get the a really – and it doesn't, length doesn't make the movie, but I want to have a thought, well-thought, constructed story, at least for me. And you know what I would consider that anyway. And everyone, and everyone can agree on that. But I, what, what I will say is this scene in particular, it really sticks out to me in a positive way, Sean, because it is a tonal shift. And I think when you're allowed to have those shifts and you're allowed to have the time, it can do wonders for your movie to build and have really have high stakes. And I think this seems a great example of that because one of the things that I got from this movie, ironically, is from the uh, a director that we saw a preview of before the movie with Avatar, you know, the uh, the Way of Water, is the Abyss. And I'm, I was watching this. I'm like, this reminds me of the Abyss, <laughs> and. But the, not just because it's underwater, but the, there's that slow, that real like kind of mm-hmm. slow build up to it. I'm like, uh, yes, thank you. Yeah. Thank well, you like for you doing- don't even see what happens to the divers, right? Like yes. you – the first one goes before we even really – I mean we we get the sense that they're in trouble. But before we of even course. know that we're supposed to be there yet, the first mm-hmm. diver has gone. Yep. And then with the other one, like we're not – we don't, I think that's Salazar. Like, we don't see what she sees or anything like that. It's the scream cut up to the monitor mm-hmm. and heart rates, you know, vitals are gone. So, okay, what happened to the other guy is what happened to her. And I, I think that that is just such a key thing. And I, look, it wouldn't surprise me if something like The Abyss was, you know, an, an influence on Ryan Coogler sure. here. And and I think that's where he does such a great job in, in playing with the different tones within all of this it's like i'm gonna make a little i'm gonna throw a little bit of a horror scene in this and that's the way that this plays and and it's got it's working on different levels like it's not jump scare horror stuff it's it's haunting haunting is the right word to Mm -hmm. i think describe Mm -hmm. this down to the siren song which uh i thought was really as i said i i was hypnotized by it i think it's beautiful i'm glad i don't have to like jump into water because of it but like it was really really good and I think also what's so great about it in terms of just 
establishing the threat level of these characters is you don't even actually know what that threat level is. You know it's high. You, you know yeah. it's tremendous. You know they're incredibly powerful, and they're going to be formidable for whoever is taking them on, including, as we can pretty much guess, it's going to be the Wakandans. You don't even know exactly what they're up against, but you're already afraid of what they're going to have to deal with because this was genuinely scary. And so much of what was scary is what you couldn't actually see, and that heightened it, which is, again, classic horror, you know, scary, haunting storytelling is the scariest things or are the things that you're not seeing that your mind is filling in those blanks with scarier things than what they might be if you actually saw them. And, and so all of that, I, I thought, was working just so well in this scene. But then I, I love the introduction to Namor, and I love the stages of this, like the way this just goes up and up and up from the Phantom Jellyfish to the Siren Song to uh, Atuma and everybody uh, attacking. And then, of course, the piece with the helicopter where just where it looks like Dr. Graham and that pilot are safe. No, they are not, because here is Namor um, and the way he just unleashes there. This was uh, this was just, I mean, it, it really put me right in. It just totally set the tone for me with uh, with these characters. And, and as... I would say just not even an introduction. As part one of an introduction to Namor, yeah, um, it, it worked really well. Yeah, I, one last thing about the siren. I I love the siren, and I'm assuming that's Ludwig. And I I agree. I loved how unique it sounded, and I I, I like that. It's again, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, I I, I don't know a ton about the the, the Talokan, aka the Atlanteans from the Marvel comic books, um, but. I, that was a really cool, a neat little idea, I thought. And again, everything, yeah, I, I love this introduction to them, too. I thought it was, it was fantastic. Yeah, it, it was, it really was spectacularly scary, uh, is the way I would describe it. Yes. I, I loved it. So then we are catching up with uh, Shuri and Ramonda in Wakanda, and it is... Um, it is the one-year anniversary to the day of T'Challa's passing. And so, really, at, at this point, we see Shuri is working on other things. She's working on the Midnight Angel armor, which hasn't been named yet. Um, but Okoye has notes. She hates it. So, oh, Shuri's been I hard at work. I thought of you, Sean, for huh? some reason. I, I thought of you when, he, when you said I had notes. I, I, for some reason, I always thought of you. When, oh, when yeah. Says, well, I, I, didn't, <laughs> I certainly didn't invent the concept of notes. But uh, no, I, know, but but I will <laughs> say, um, unlike Okoye, I, I got no notes on the Midnight Angel armor. It looks sure. exactly like it does in the comic books for the most part. They've changed who the Midnight Angels are, uh, one of them, uh, compared to the comic books. But we'll get to that a little bit later on. Um, so, uh, I, I thought... You, this does a really good job of kind of establishing what Shuri has been up to. She's been burying herself in the lab, developing new things. She's been worrying about threats. It's almost Tony Stark-esque. You know, she's talking about oh, different threats can come from anywhere, and they're they're already coming through and, and developing solutions for everything that they might face. And, and I think that really speaks to Shuri's mindset because – she didn't know that there was a threat to her brother, and it came from a place that she never really would have anticipated because when your brother is a warrior, you're constantly worrying about the threats that are external as opposed to something that is internal because when somebody is like T'Challa was, you don't necessarily think of uh, illness being a factor. And so I think it really speaks to Shuri's mindset of being totally, uh, completely on the defensive 
not necessarily consumed by it in the way that Tony was, but also not not at all free from it either. And we see that it is kind of leading her. We don't know yet just how dark of a path um, that it is tempting her with, but we start to see that there is a certain level of of, of obsession that she has here. And but she still listens to her mom, and so and that's where Ramonda has that value to her daughter is really being able to have that command to have her daughter say, okay, like this is the one year anniversary of my son, your brother's passing. And I have made plans for us. You're going to have to drive me somewhere and you're going to have to leave the Camoyo beads behind. Uh, And then we get to where they are by the river and another great scene, another one where you can just queue up the Oscar clip. And we, you mentioned grief, right? And the, the differences in the human experience, and, and that includes grief. And right here is just a beautiful illustration of the differences between those two things. And what you have here is Ramonda talking about how even though she's queen again, and she has all of these responsibilities, so many things going on, she took the time to mourn. She took the time to have a ritual for herself to go through the process, the grieving process of her son, which not it's not a process that ever really has an end to it, but there is a, a moment of transition, as she describes, where it goes from you change the relationship with your loved one's passing. And her description of that, her description of how when she was wandering in the bush until she found water and she felt the presence of her son, she felt T'Challa being there, guiding her, And not just saying that because it sounds nice, but saying that because that's what was true to her experience and what she felt. And then you have that in contrast with Shuri and her experience, which is a more cynical, more practical approach, even flat out telling her mom, like, what you felt wasn't real. What you felt was something that your mind made up up for you in order to help you be more comfortable and experience some joy as you were processing this. That's not what Shuri feels. And you actually go back to the prayer that she says at the very start of the film when she's saying, Bast, if you help me save my brother, I will never question your existence again. Well, she wasn't able to save her brother. So obviously, Shuri is still questioning that existence. And her spirituality has effectively, whatever sliver of it that she was holding on to, she let go uh, when her brother passed. And now we see the way she's dealing with her grief as this scene illustrates. And it's a much darker, it's a very angry perspective. As she even says, if I spend too much time thinking about my brother's death, then I'm going to want to burn the entire world down. And I think that the first time I saw the movie, I, I was a little, I, I did have some some questioning of this path for Shuri as a character because it just didn't really feel like the Shuri that we had known from the from the first film and even from Avengers Infinity War. And I mean, we didn't really see much of her in Avengers Endgame, but she was there. But the second time I saw it, I think I went, I released the idea of Shuri from the first film and just welcomed in what was happening here and just being present with it. And yeah, suffering a loss like she did can change you. And it can change you for the worse uh, temporarily or not necessarily temporarily. And her response, like that feeling, 
That is a feeling that people go through. That is part of the gr- not necessarily part of the grieving process for everyone, but that can be part of the grieving process when life just simply isn't fair. And for all the reasons that it's not, did T'Challa deserve that illness? No, he did not. For Shuri to also be frustrated because she can do so many things and she can save so many people like she saved Everett Ross back in the first movie. But here in that moment, she could not save the person that she would pick. She would choose to save above all else, her brother T'Challa. Yes, that can be incredibly frustrating. And yes, that can lead to anger. And it could be an, an anger that where you're just you're mad at the world because of the cosmic injustice of the world that you and your family have suffered. And so it doesn't excuse her doing any terrible, horrible thing, which she doesn't do in this movie. You can obviously tell that for the most part, she has had a handle on it. And then she comes very close to losing that handle later on in the movie. But to just show that that anger is there and it's still very raw for her, I I thought was important because if you're going to tell a story where grief is playing such a central role, you have to be able to illustrate and honor and validate the different perspectives. And I think that this scene is really, really good and at its best with the way that it respects the different approaches to the grief that Ramonda and Shuri have, each of which is unique to them. Yeah, this was, uh, for whatever reason, I, I didn't really catch the prayer and uh, as much this first time as the second time at the beginning of the movie. Because I think I was just so captivated by, like, oh, my God, we're getting this scene. Um, and the fact that she's doubting her faith, I just I kind of missed out a little bit on that um, the first time. But then the second time, I really I, I dug into it to it more. And, yes, this scene was it was it was nice to have a, a scene set up where she was just like, I don't I'm not. She's almost rejecting everything about where where she comes from because she's lost everything pretty much except for her mom at this point. Right. So I, I liked I did like it. I did like this whole setup with her and the fact that she's, you know, we're seeing her rebel against what her, you know, what's being, what is her legacy essentially because she's lost, you know, what she was a part of her legacy is now gone and it was robbed from her. Right. So I like this idea that she's like, no, this this isn't real. You know, this is, it it, it also speaks to the fact that she's very practical as far as, you know, her technological, you know, out, you know, where her, you know, her natural abilities are right. I mean, she's, she has, it, she has to be able to touch it, to feel it, to understand it, not experience it yet. And so I think that was really interesting as well, because at this point she's only experienced, you know, her father and her brother and she hasn't had really, you know, she's obviously helped defend Wakanda and, and she's also part of the end game, I guess you could say too. Um, you know, but she, she's experiencing things, but like not, she hasn't gone out completely yet at this point. She's kind of, she's, she's hunkered down and, and just, you know, putting her, her mind in on her work. And I think that this is a good indication of where she's at in her life. And it's nice to see that she's, you know, I like where she's, where she's at, where she's, she's doubting everything. And she just, she wants to shut everything out and just only focus on what she's good at, which is at this point is, you know, working on tech. So it's an interesting a- idea here w- w- before we get the, uh, the big reveal. Yeah. And that big reveal is Namor in Wakanda. And so, as I mentioned Different stages to the introduction of Namor within this movie. Here's part two, where he comes out of the water, and he, the way that he approaches this, like, I just, 
Tenoch Huerta Mejia, who plays in the, you know, introducing Tenoch Huerta Mejia as he's credited in this movie, uh, in the as the credits roll before you get to the mid credit scene. I mean, obviously he's been around, but this is an introduction to a, a global audience when you're talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and we see him, but kind of not, only barely in part one of that introduction, but. From the first step, I mean, from the time his head just starts poking up out of the water, this guy is Namor. His presence that he is bringing to this, everything about this just screams Namor. And we will get to the examples as we go on uh, through all of this. But there's not... Maybe the only thing I'd say from Namor that this portrayal, and it's not even Tenoch Huerta's... Uh, it's not even so much him because it's not even really the moments where he's asked to do it. Although it's still there a little bit. Like the arrogance of Namor isn't as fully present in this, although I think we'll see it as time goes on in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it's still there in in little moments here. But the the nature of of Namor as an antagonist and the role he often plays as an antagonist, where it's not the... It's not what a villain often is in these stories which is you love to hate them and it's fun to hate them which is why you love it so much namor is a hate to love him kind of guy because he does a lot of things and he does a big thing in in this movie that we'll we'll certainly talk about you you should have a really hard time loving this guy you you don't you shouldn't want to uh love this guy but you kind of do, uh, because you do understand his perspective, and he gets the opportunity to explain it well. And that goes back to something that Ryan Coogler, and then also Joe Robert Cole, who wrote, they wrote both of these movies together. One of the things that they have done a, a better job of than I think almost anybody else who's been writing these movies is really giving other, well, I think there have been other writers who've given, who've done a good job of this, but these two guys, they might be the best in the way they allow their characters uh, across the call sheet, across the pecking order, whatever the hell you want to call it, really get a chance to voice their perspective and do so in a way that is convincing. You may not ultimately agree with all of the decisions they make and the approach that they take and all of those things, but you understand where they come from. And that is on perfect display here with Namor, as he explains why exactly he's here. He wants Wakanda's help. He demands Wakanda's help in capturing, so he can kill, the scientist who invented that vibranium detector because that is a problem for Namor, for Talokan, because if they are found, then, of course, they will be under attack. He knows all of these things because he has seen all of these things in other civilizations, including right in front of him when he buried his mother, as we'll find out, he knows what would happen. And it kind of goes back to where Wakanda was in the very first movie of the tradition of keeping themselves hidden, not revealing, I mean, the world knew Wakanda existed, but they thought it was an underdeveloped third world country. They did not think, they had no idea of the technological power that Wakanda possessed and that it was actually the most advanced nation in the world. They had no idea about that and that was something that a secret that Wakanda kept hidden and went too far in what they were willing to do in order to keep those secrets hidden that was a huge thematic piece of the first movie and changing 
that tradition. And ultimately, T'Challa made the decision to open Wakanda up to the world to share their knowledge, their resources, not necessarily vibranium in terms of just giving people vibranium, but sharing knowledge and resources with the rest of the world. And that is also part of why Namor is here. That is why he feels Wakanda is responsible for this and owes him, Namor, owes Talokan something because we each had our secret civilizations with vibranium. You're the one who drew the world's interest to vibranium in the first place, who let the world know that it's not just one hunk of metal in a Frisbee, that it is in actually all these other places, um, that the, the supply is not nearly as limited as the world believed. You sparked the world's interest in the search for vibranium, and that is what is bringing the world closer to discovering us and becoming a problem for us. And that is a valid concern on the part of Namor. Does that justify murdering a 19-year-old scientist? No, but it does explain why Namor is here in the first place, and it does a really great job of building on the story of the first film. And it was in a way that was very unexpected. I knew when we watched that movie, and it's something that we've definitely talked about on the podcast over the years, that that decision of, for T'Challa to open up Wakanda to the rest of the world, that that was going to have consequences. We saw that actually in, in the Battle of Wakanda in Avengers Infinity War, but I always knew that in a sequel, there were going to be people who were going to take issue with that. A lot of times I wondered if that might be people within Wakanda who suffered losses who would not be happy with the decision that T'Challa made, but actually, no, it's this other entirely different, and there might be people within Wakanda who feel that, but there's this entirely other civilization that we didn't know about, but now we're hearing about, and they are also impacted by this, because again, Wakanda introducing itself to the world and showing its true face to the rest of the world is what has sparked this interest and sparked this search that's becoming a problem for Namor. So his whole perspective on this and why he feels Wakanda owes him, like I get it. I don't fully agree with it, and I'm certainly not in favor of taking out Riri Williams, uh, whom we're about to meet, but I love getting giving a character in this critical moment a chance to explain himself, and it only works, though, if the writing is on point, which it is, uh, and the performance really carries it, because I'm spending way more time explaining all of this than they actually do in the scene. I'm doing a terrible job of it. So Tenoch Huerta does a much, much, much better job in the lines that he's given to explain uh, his perspective and what he now demands of Wakanda. And uh, this is just another, the start of another unbelievable performance in this movie. You know, I have one, one of my small criticisms of this movie is specifically the lighting and, and the introduction of name of Namor uh, specifically in this scene. This is probably, I think the weakest and I, and I say weakest is like, not like it's not bad, but it's just, it's, it's a little abrupt for me and the lighting is just, it just, it's just, I'm not, I'm not a fan of it. I wish it was a little bit brighter. You brought up a point earlier where you said, you know, you would think the introduction of, of, of Namor would be, you know, bright sun. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what I thought the first one would be. It was a little bit, you know, a little bit more light in the day. Right. Um, I wish they would have done dusk. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I just, the lighting of this, of this scene specifically, I think is, it kind of bothered me with his introduction. Cause I love, I love Namor. He's always been one of my more uh, favorite characters of, to read. And, and he's such a great character to have in your book where, He's, you know, he's a good, he's a good lead character. Don't, don't get me wrong, but he works so well in team books and other as like just the anti-hero. 
and I think that's the thing this this movie got, and Kugler just nails. I mean, everyone nails. Actor nails him. Everyone nails the character of Namor because he is that person that you understand where he's coming from. You don't agree at all what he's doing, but you see this person that will do will literally sacrifice anything and anyone for his people. And it's, you know, and, and it's interesting because you see this develop throughout the film and it's really brilliantly done because you see the, 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 the soft side of him, but we get the introduction of like, this guy's the villain. He's, you know, whatever, right. He's a, he's the bad guy. And he's, but he's telling him the truth. Like, yeah. listen, like, you know, when the child got out there and revealed, like people are out there, they're trying to get, they're trying to find vibranium and they've, they're going to discover us. And we have, we have a peaceful existence. I don't want you people messing with my people, you know, and, and, and anyone. And I love the fact that you're establishing that he will do any, whatever it takes to do that. Mm-hmm. And we don't see, we don't see that soft side yet. Um, that's coming. And I, I just love this introduction because it's, it's aggressive and he's tell he just outright tells him, doesn't, doesn't beat around the bush. Like I give me the scientists. I need to murder them because I cannot have this happen on my people. And they, you know, and realizing like, I've got an army. Now there's a lot, man, yeah. there, I could go, there's on, that I could great go on. line when he says, I've got more soldiers than you have blades of glass, blades, uh, blades of grass in this country. Yeah. I'm like, Oh man, that was so good. I, I think, and Oh, go ahead. Good. You know, I, I think there is so much to take from this movie of, you know, cause we've talked about it. Like I think off, I think our, no, on one of our um spoiler reviews for the, I think, you know, where I thought the MCU might be going after the secret wars. I said that I think there's going to be after the multiverse saga, a heavy emphasis of, you know, of different countries going to war. I think this is the first major seat of that, Sean with Namor, because he says it right there. I've got more people than you have blades of grass, and we'll talk more about it. Oh, and and I he think, signals war at the end of the film too. So exactly, it's, there's yeah, it's coming. And 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 think about this. Why? Because I love this. Is all perfect setup, by the way. Because you have the vibranium now has been established. It's in the ocean, and she, you know, Suri Suri says, well, obviously there's other meteors that went down. So people are going to be kind of fishing around, like what's going on there. And if if he's found it, I'm sure there's other people who have found it too, or maybe another country out there that hasn't been introduced as of yet that may have a little bit and wants more and has a history with fighting with both, you know, with Talakan, aka Atlantis, and Wakanda. It's going to be very, very interesting. Where that's a Latveria tease, everyone. Yeah, everyone it, it, yeah. It's going to be very interesting where that's going to be because I think that's where we might be going with this a little bit. And I think where we're establishing with Namor is that I will do whatever it takes for that. And we're establishing right now the rules of the game a little bit where Wakanda fits into everything. And I love that. And I love the fact that Namor is basically making him realize like, hey, guess what? You guys thought you're the world power? Mm, you're pretty powerful, but you're not the only world power that's just kind of hanging out, chilling, chilling back here right now. And I, I don't think there's any more, honestly. But I think Namor, with his, now that he's being basically outed, and it's it's gonna be it's gonna get out, obviously, and it's gonna signal even more because now that the that vibranium has been established, there's so many you know outside of Wakanda, a little bit, even a little bit now, Sean. It's now going to unfold many possibilities for the Marvel Universe. And Namor is just one of them. A big one. A giant one. 
but I love it. And I love, I, even though I, th- this is probably, this is going to, this is really weird way, a thing for me to say. This is my least favorite scene with Namor in it of the movie. It's not bad, but it was, it was, I was the lighting and I'm like, and, and how he was talking. I'm like, I don't, uh, hmm. I, I loved everything. As far as how I he was talking, it. the line delivery, I just, uh, I loved, I thought it was chilling. Uh, I thought it was, very intimidating. It, he was doing exactly what he was trying to do, which is, yes. I need you to do that. And why does he need them to do this, right? You, you, you could certainly ask, well, if Namor is so powerful, if Talokan is so powerful, then why do they need Wakanda's help? Well, Wakanda going and getting the scientist helps Talokan stay a secret, right? It's harder for them mm-hmm. to be discovered if exactly. they... You can't get caught in the act if you're not the one doing it. So, um, unless there's a paper trail, but I don't think you have that for, uh, for Talokan. Not really a concern. So... His whole reasoning behind it, it works. It, it's sound as far as just the emotional standpoint, the perspective of this character. It totally works. The way it's explained is is very good, but it's also just that threat. And I, I think, you know, for Wakanda, that threat is real, and we're going to see it carried out. Like, I, we will attack if you don't help us. And, and obviously, Wakanda is not just going to immediately cave to a threat and that's not what they do here in this story um but uh, just to address the lighting thing i had no problem with it i know it's not how we are used to seeing namor introductions you know and well even predating fantastic four but it's not the way i usually see the character but i think this was the right way to introduce him because the whole point is you're revealing you're peeling back layers throughout the story and so i think when you shine a literal light on him in this very first scene, besides, of course, like the, you know, silhouette, the distant silhouette in the the scene where he attacks the helicopter, I think you show too much. And, and I don't think you want to see, I don't, as an audience, we're not supposed to see the beauty of Talokan yet. We're just supposed to see scary threat because that's what Namor wants everyone to see. That's what he wants Wakanda to see. That's what he wants the world to see. And so, I think that is such a that's such a key thing in this story where I, I think the lighting the lighting serves where the character is at and what we're supposed to see from the character at this at this particular moment uh, in the story and that's why I enjoyed it is it's really more about the scary the intimidation the threat uh, and that but also the perspective and, and that's where this really uh, that's where this really works well. Yeah, I. I don't, I, you know, for me, I it just the, the the lighting was just a little odd to me. I liked it better the second time, but I just want to say right now, I freaking love Namor, and I'm gonna gush about him from here on out. I just want to make that very very clear. So this seems specific, specifically not just it, it just the lighting just kind of bothered me. And this is again a couple nitpicks with lighting in this movie and the dark scenes, not my favorite. Those are like my nitpicks for this movie, but I digress. Yeah, I, I, that part I can I, that part I can understand. I mean, look, it, it's definitely not the uh, not the clearest view uh, of the character in this scene, but it it worked for me. And so here's the threat for what uh, this is what Wakanda has to do. They've got to go get this scientist, and they know that they need to go get this scientist. But it's really more for the purposes of protecting that scientist, also maybe figuring out what that scientist knows. Because hey, a vibranium detector is a problem for them too, so they need to gather more information. And also protect a presumably innocent person. And so 
What do they do? Well, you got to bring it before the council, like all things uh, in Wakanda. Although there's also that scene between Okoye and, well, we'll see that uh, actually a little bit later on. But when we have this, uh, when we go to the council meeting and all of the tribal elders are there and discussing what they should do and, and weighing the risks of what they should do, who shows up but Mbaku and the Jabari. And when I talk about tone changes, Winston Duke, the magic that is Winston Duke, yeah, is an instant tone change in this movie. And he is the much needed break in tension, comedic relief that, you know, that I, I just, I didn't even really, it hadn't even necessarily occurred to me. It didn't necessarily in the first time I saw it, but then registered more the second time of, yeah, I haven't really been laughing a whole lot. And there's not been stuff to laugh with in, in the story at this point, because it's all been very, very heavy. You have the death of T'Challa and then a lot of very dark, scary, intimidating stuff for with the introduction of Namor. And so it hasn't really been time yet to have a few laughs. And then M'Baku comes in and the way he dresses down the river tribe and the way he goes after uh, the people in the council and just calls people out, all of that just works. And I mean, Winston Duke, just amazing. I mean, I remember back in the days of a person of interest and uh, I, I know our our own dearly departed friend John Beerley was a big fan of Winston Duke from back in those days. Uh, and then, of course, in seeing him in Black Panther. And I, I think that uh, this guy just has a, a charisma that is, I mean, it, it's just coming out of the guy. Like, it's just, it is, it's a force. Uh, Winston Duke is a force to be reckoned with. And he is so good in this because it's not just, and I, and I think that's what I love more about this character as the movie goes on. Is we 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 are used to the intimidating side of Mbaku, the comedic side uh, we were certainly introduced to in the first film and reintroduced in this scene, but there is a, a very true and, and earnest you know there's a sincerity to Mbaku as a character that really gets a chance to shine through in some great ways later on in this movie, but to just after so much tension and you know the first half hour, 40 minutes of this movie or, or whatever it is at this point to have that break with this character, but to do so in a way that allows the audience to have a few laughs, but it doesn't undercut anything. It's not like all of a sudden the stakes have gone away. This is still a very heavy decision that the council faces with what they are going to do here. Are they going to kill the scientist, or, which you know seems highly unlikely that they're going to do? Um, what's what's at stake here? And Mbaku's perspective on this is, instead of kill the scientist, kill the fish man. Because if we just give in to his very first demand and compromise ourselves in the process, what's to stop him to, to from asking for more and more and more? Uh, which is certainly a, a valid question for him to ask. But yeah, this council meeting where they decide what to do, and this is another part of this represents... Other council meetings that we saw in the past, right? What to do about Ulysses Claw, what to do about Killmonger, and all of these other moments, and also Mbaku calling out the council for standing by Killmonger when Killmonger took the throne and saying that these people who are making these decisions are not perfect and have not always made the right call. Um, so they're not guaranteed to make the right call here either, but he's going to voice what he thinks uh, the best decision is. But that's also what I love about this is how many different perspectives get to come to the table and be voiced throughout these stories. 
it, it just really adds dimension to these stories. It adds so many more layers to it to give all so many characters so much space um, to to voice their perspective on on these heavy situations with these high stakes. But also, yes, Mbaku, absolutely hilarious. Yeah, I love the council scene. Um, I'm only going to echo I'm gonna echo everything you just said about that and, and whatnot. But the one thing that Winston Duke just has is this presence is just anytime he's on screen, he just he demands attention. And whether it be it, it's a funny scene or an angry scene or whatever. And I'm amazed of how like the little time we see him on screen, I just want more of him. And mm-hmm. it's it's really crazy. And I I almost think like the they need to up it they need to up into something more in the next film to have a real a step even more of an important I mean I think he will be, he'll have to be, I think, to be honest. I think he's gonna be uh, you know, basically like the the big brother now. He's she's got her sisters, obviously, in the Dora Milaje, but she needs a bet brother aspect too. I think that he'll fulfill. He said he'll he promise her, you know, later on for a council. But I think what's in, you know, Umbaku, um, I think they need to do something with him in the comics and, 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 and therefore in the movie as well, because he has just elevated that character to a whole different stratosphere by himself. And I love every time he's, he's on screen is whatever he's doing is amazing. And I love him. So I'm all about for more Umbaku one way or another. Yeah, and the way it ends for him, uh, challenging for the throne, which we'll get to, that's, I love that ending for M'Baku, and we talk about carrying things forward in Wakanda in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so yeah, a lot of really, really exciting stuff uh, for this character, and just in general, I mean, wow, what what a great way to, uh, to change things up, but then it's time to, a decision's been made, Got to go find the scientists, whoever they may be. And as they are planning that, we have this discussion, right, between Okoye and Ramonda and Shuri. How can they have vibranium, which they know is true because Namor, as Shuri pointed out in that previous scene, Namor was covered in it. And so now when we get to this this scene where we talk about questioning things and and questioning what people have necessarily always had as their reality as even Okoye points out like this idea that there is that there was more than one meteorite Shuri being the scientist comes to the logical conclusion well stands to reason there could be more than one meteorite and if there's more than one that struck the earth yeah the ocean seems like the most likely place because more of the earth's surface is covered by the ocean than any landmass. so yeah that checks out that's enough for Shuri the scientist but for Okoye it changes everything that she knows, everything that she's that, as she points out, has been seared in her mind. And I love the line by Shuri. That sounds painful. But now they have to go find the scientist. But here is a pivotal moment in this scene where Okoye is very well-meaning here, as she says to Ramonda, that Shuri should come with her. And Ramonda has reservations about this. She just initially flat out says no, but then Okoye points out, I'll be in the field with her. This is a, a mission that should be a snap. Easy for me. I can do this, and it would be good for Shuri to get out. She's buried herself in her work in the lab for the past year. It would help. It, it will be beneficial to her to actually get out in the world for a little bit 
And Okoye is very confident that she can do this and, and have Shuri come with her on this mission with little danger to Shuri. Ramonda, though, was reluctant because, as she says, she's not necessarily worried about the Americans. And what she's worried about is this threat of Namor and his army. And Ramonda is correct. She is right to be worried about that, as we are going to see. But this conversation, I mean, it worked for me very much and, and very well on the, the first go-round. But I, if you haven't seen the movie a second time, I certainly invite you to focus on this scene because, of course, you are going to see um, a much different conversation tonally between Ramonda and Okoye later on in this movie. And it, and it just goes back to this, and you really lock, it, it, you really lock in on the concern that Ramonda expresses and Okoye mm. feeling like she's just got the confidence that that's not really going to be what happens. And Okoye, look, they have every reason to be a little overconfident, right? Because Wakanda mm. hasn't met a challenger that they haven't been able to deal with. Okoye yeah. hasn't really met challengers that they haven't been able to deal with. They were just there alongside the Avengers battling Thanos and his army, and they won. So point. Yeah. There, there's yeah. a lot of confidence for Okoye to have um, too much, as it turns out here, but you understand where she's coming from while at the same time understand exactly where Ramonda, as a mother, who is buying what what Namor was selling, um, and also Ramonda, who's lost so much, doesn't want to lose uh, the last member of her family that she has left in her daughter, and all of that, that conversation, is it's so good, but then it's even better once you actually already know what's going to happen. So it, that scene just got better for me. On uh, a, a great scene got even better as I saw the movie for, uh, for a second time. But in order to find out where this scientist is and where all this came from, this brings us to the uh, red hot chili pepper loving Everett Ross on a jog who uh, says he can't stop and then does because of a bug. Uh, that is a uh, that uh, is a Kamoyo bead that leads him to into the woods for a conversation with Shuri and Okoye. That basically amounts to a "you owe me, you owe my brother" conversation, and that is a hundred percent true. Because as we remember, it was T'Challa who was willing to bring Everett Ross to Wakanda, and then Shuri who actually performed the procedure to perf- uh, to save Everett Ross's life back in the very first movie. And Martin Freeman is so good in this role. And, uh, you know, it's been a joy to watch him in this. And, and it's crazy that he, you know, the way this character is is set up here. And, and look, he doesn't necessarily have a massive role in this movie, although the role he plays and the fact that we meet his uh, ex-wife later on in this movie and who that is plays into some other things that are, uh, I think, coming up pretty soon here in uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, um, I, I liked Ross a lot in this movie, but particularly in this uh, this introduction scene where we learn that the scientist is actually a kid uh, who we'll meet in the very next scene. But the reintroduction to Everett Ross, as played so wonderfully by Martin Freeman, I was a fan of it. Yeah, Martin Freeman was, I, I knew he was in the movie. And one of the things I, I'm going to talk more about, I think, this uh, going you know, later on but I want to just establish here really quick with Martin Freeman. I, he's a great actor. I love him. He's he, uh, he's just, he's so good in the first one, uh, or in, in in Civil War and in uh, the first Black Panther Black Panther movie that he's he's a great great um, just solid actor that just plays so well with anyone, right? 
But one of the things I love uh, love about this movie so much is that there's a lot of characters in this movie. Like any Marvel film, there's going to be a lot of characters, right? But there is – with every – when you have the context of this movie, Sean, and what you're doing and the themes of the movie and everything, and then you – no character is wasted at all. Great point. And and, and I think Martin Freeman's um, – uh, oh, God, Ross, yeah uh, – you know, he is not wasted and you and he has pivotal things he does and drives plot forward and never it never feels like he's just shoehorned in. And I'm, and again, put a pin in that because we're going to talk a lot about that here in a few minutes. But I just want to say that right now that Coogler has cr- and again, and I, maybe I'm alone. I'm not, I know I'm not alone on this and not everyone's going to agree with it. But in my opinion, I think Coogler has crafted such a tight knit story for a sequel, and when you consider what he did, again, you don't have to agree with what casting, recasting, doesn't matter. If you consider what the, what he was up against and how there's not a lot of wasted characters in this, nothing feels shoehorned, it's pretty impressive, in my opinion. So I just, for me, as someone, and again, I, I don't, I, Marvel films, like Sean said earlier, I love them. I, it's going to be, it's going to have to be complete dog crap in order for me to like just despise something. And I, but people know if I don't like something, I'm going to, you know, I don't, I did not love Thor, Thor, love and thunder. Right. I did not love Ant-Man and the Wasp. There's movies and there's movies out there of MCU that I don't love and the things that are okay. And so I, I think I've, I've had some credibility to say when something is just like, you know, I just, it doesn't feel right to me. I always love something because I love it. I just feel that this movie is just not wasting anything. And this is a great example of a small actor or a small part, excuse me, just just use brilliantly and just efficiently. And I think that should not be understated in anyone's review. And I just want to make sure I made it very clear. <laughs> I don't think anybody fully utilizes and realizes their characters in Marvel movies as much as Ryan Coogler does. I, yeah. I just I, I really don't. And especially yeah. now that now that he's done it twice, you know, I, I feel that much more confident in saying that. I, I think that everybody if he's gonna bother to put them on screen, he gives them their due. Maybe I, I would say slightly counter to that argument is Maybe Io and Aneka in uh, in this one, but even then, I'll you know we'll, we'll address that when we get to those characters. Sure. But but still, for the most part, though, like uh, at least Michaela Cole's Aneka, like she gets her moments still uh, within this. But there are so many other characters in them. I mean, there's so many characters to get introduced in this, um, mm-hmm. and they almost all get their due. Like it, it's pretty crazy with the way he's able to balance all of that. And then also a lot of that falls on the actors. Like you're going to have to do a lot with a little. And I think with Everett Ross, what Martin Freeman communicates in his performances, is there's just this decency to this guy, which you wouldn't expect from, you know, a CIA operative, honestly, you just, mm. why would you? But it uh, seems like the kind of thing that might make you bad at that job. Although we do see that Ross isn't as good as he thinks he is and isn't as deceptive as he thinks he's being, um, which I'm glad that panned out because he, he, I didn't think he was doing a great job of covering for what he was doing and how much information we we see him sharing. But just that point, right when Shuri points out the stakes and that the history, right? You owe me, you owe my brother, and Everett Ross knows he does, and then he gives them information. As he says, people have been killed for tre, you know, killed for treason for way less than what he's about to give them, which is the identity of the scientist. And that scientist, yes, is a kid. 
and we move to MIT, and we meet Riri Williams as played by Dominique Thorne. And I love that uh, she's, I, I love that she's right there. The first thing we see is she's already got a business for herself, fixing the homework for the other MIT students, making money from that, while also obviously clearly working on her own projects. And I like that this gives Shuri an opportunity. And this is a, a, a good moment for Shuri when Okoye and, and Shuri are, are watching Riri Williams and somebody's going to have to go approach her and Okoye as the the one with the field experience leading this mission, the her assumption is, yeah, it's going to be me. But Shuri points out, well, maybe it should be me because I can actually pass for a student here, which you obviously cannot. So I think what I like about it is, you know, Shuri becomes, uh, spoiler alert, Shuri becomes Black Panther by the end of this movie, but she's fairly inexperienced in the field, right? And, and I think right. that's part of the reason that, when we talked about reasons why Shuri wouldn't necessarily be Black Panther in the MCU the way that she was in the comic books is because, well, it's basically what the story establishes. And I think this, what this story does a, a very good job with is not necessarily justifying, like, yes, she's the perfect choice from a skill and experience standpoint to be Black Panther. It's an emotional choice that she is Black Panther in this but at least she gets these little pieces of experience in the field that will serve her in her path forward as Black Panther, that this is all new territory for her, but at least she gets a chance to step up in this small piece that she's going to be the first one to make contact with Riri Williams, who, despite the uh, deep voice on the other side of the door, once Riri Williams actually sees who that is, immediately recognizes that this is Princess Shuri, and then Riri is hoping that this means she's being recruited, but she quickly gets gets over that, and Shuri is trying to explain to her what's at stake. And I, I got to say, Dominique Thorne really enjoyed her performance here as Riri Williams, and now just can't wait for the Ironheart Disney Plus series. I thought she was super funny. I thought she did really great when it came to... And look, Dominique Thorne has been great in other stuff, so uh, it's not like I was surprised... Uh, I was not surprised to see her do such a great job in her performance here, but I really liked her. But also I, I like getting a chance to see just a status update on the character because I was uh, a little curious and just how old the character would be because Dominic Thorne doesn't, I mean, I think Riri Williams in the comic book when we first meet her is more like 14 or 15, but that's not uh, the age that they're going here. It's a little bit older with where we're starting this journey for Riri Williams, but I think being a 19-year-old genius is just as impressive as being a 14-year-old genius. So I think I don't really have uh, any issue with aging the character up uh, a little bit. And also, you know, makes it, it doesn't put Shuri and Okoye in that question mark of like, oh, why are you letting this 14 or 15-year-old go to battle? Kind of like Tony Stark uh, with <laughs> Peter Parker back in <laughs> Captain America Civil War. But uh, that was all for friendly fighting, right? But anyway... Um, yeah, I, I thought Riri was great in this scene. I, the way that she, you know, addressed the makeup on Okoye's head covering up for the Dora Milaje tattoos, I thought was really, really funny. Um, and just her reaction to all of the craziness here of being introduced to the idea of there's a merman, uh, a merman who's out there who wants to kill her with wings on his ankles and all of those things. I, I just think, and her, it was just so relatable in that sense, like, we as an audience just take for granted all of the spectacle of the MCU and how crazy so many of these things and these concepts are. But and even I would imagine a lot of people who live within that world might have a chance to take it for granted. But at the same time, 
for Riri Williams. Here is this famous princess from this uh, famous, now famous nation and high profile nation who's at your door uh, of your dorm at MIT. And now here's a member of the Dora Milaje, and they're telling you they have to come, you have to come with them because a, a fish guy with wings on his ankles is going to bring his army to come kill you. Yeah, that's kind of a hard thing to initially grasp. And so her reaction to all of that was so authentic in such a funny way. I have to admit something here. Um, you know, Ironheart was a character that I, you know, I, I read her introduction in Iron Man and in, in Civil War II in the comic books. And in, in, in the old Patreon show, Rest in Peace, and I miss it very much when we would read comic books before, uh, you know, for, for different you know things coming up here. We read the Ironheart series. I was not super excited about it because I never connected to the character. And I like those comics a lot more. But I just never got into the character um, I even bought her um, her original run by Bendis, and it just and I don't know. I, I just for some reason I, I liked Miss Marvel's character. She's a lot more entertaining to me, Kamala Khan. But Ironheart, just for whatever reason, I don't know. So I didn't know if she. I, honestly, Sean, I, I avoided so much of this movie that I had no idea what Riri was gonna do. I thought maybe she was gonna be like a shoehorned character in, like, oh, I have this. My friend Riri is, is also a genius. Is here in Wakanda on a, on some kind of program, which they use as later as cover, right? Which yeah. I thought was funny. I'm like, I laughed. I'm like, okay, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, and they and, could have done that, right? Like that yeah, was that easily. because they introduced the concept of you know the Wakandan outreach centers and all of those things, yep. like. Yep. Yeah, it, it would stand to reason that Riri Williams could have been a candidate to be, you know, a student with an internship at that place yep. and, and all of those things. So and that was yeah, kind of what I just thought, oh, that's probably what they'll do. But then as soon as they were talking about an American scientist uh, invented a vibranium detector, I'm like, oh, so that's going to be the way they're bringing Riri into this. And that is so much better uh, than anything I would thought of. That's why, you know, Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole get paid to write this stuff and I just talk about it on podcasts like that. I think the way that they did it, um, it it made sense. I mean, I guess you could you could still say, oh, you could be jaded about it and say it's all way too coincidental. But everything is like oh, someone yeah. wrote it because someone did write it. So yeah, I, exactly. I think it's on, the way they came up with it. I, I thought gave it a fairly organic place, uh, a fairly organic yeah. place in the in the story. And I like the way they added little touches, too, because I know she offhandedly mentions catching a Bulls game with Shuri in Chicago later on. But because uh, the character is from Chicago and, you know, goes back and forth to MIT in her comic in, in the comics. But I like that right away you see the Chicago flag in her dorm room to know that that's part of it. So if you know the character from the comic books a little bit, you see those touches to know that obviously you're going to get to know a lot more about that character and her world as her story goes on. Yeah. And so when when they introduce her and I'm like, oh. Okay, so she's actually like, you know, the MacGuffin, essentially, um, of the movie. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I'm like, okay, she's the one that they're coming after. And and I'm like, huh, okay. I, it just, it felt very natural. And again, I go back to that. What Kugler did was introduce a new, basically important character going forward, Sean, um, and again, there what Marvel is doing, and I don't know if Coogler is just, just like becoming an architect of the MCU or is so in line with Kevin Feige and, and the produ- other producers that and, and where they're going in the future that Coogler just knows how to interweave all these different like like teases and other other things that can I pull on, you know, these strings to pull on later on because we'll, we'll get to here. 
this movie is a lot about legacy and about moving on in both a meta and a, and a MCU story going forward. I find it very interesting that Riri Williams, the Ironheart character, is basically, you know, a legacy of, you know, Stark. We, they've mentioned the Stark tech. Where that's all going to be going forward in her own series and in Armor Wars, it's genius how Cougar is able to, insta- you know, put her into this. And I, I'm assuming it's his idea um, to put her in as like the MacGuffin, if you will, of this movie and really have – and again, now the actress – just knocks it out of the park. Like I want to say that right now I had no, I just did not really have any excitement over Riri Williams. And after this movie, I'm like, I'm all in on her. I mean, I'm all in. Like I, I, she was her presence on screen and her, the way she characterized this, this, this character I thought was perfect. And I was way more excited for her than I ever thought I was going to be, to be honest. I mean, I immediately, I can't wait for her show. And I think the armor war show with her and, and uh, war machine going forward is I'm, I am pins and needles, man pins and needles. Yeah. Well, now that's movies. a movie, not a series. So, well, no, no, her, her own series, right. Into armor war. Is, is right. it armor wars first or is it, uh, no, it's going to be, no, Ironheart is next year. So we'll see Ironheart first armor wars. Yeah. I got changed from a, right, that's what uh, I mean. yeah. got changed from a series to a movie that's coming out. Who knows when? So we'll, we'll see what okay. happens with armor wars. But, but yeah, Ironheart, but yeah, but yeah Dom- next. Yeah. But, and Dominique Thorne is just incredible and she's great. And you should definitely check out other movies she's done. I mean, she has a small part in If Beale Street Could Talk, which you should watch because also it's just a great movie. Um, but also she was in uh, Judas and the Black Messiah with uh, former Black Panther star Daniel Kaluuya, uh, who is referred to in this movie, does not uh, make an appearance as Wakabi. But yeah, I, I think that she did uh, just such a great job right out the gate. And and it's tough, right? When you're just, you're a character that's kind of part of, another world you know you're just kind of passing through being a guest star within this larger world of wakanda but riri williams thanks to the writing but then also the performance of dominic thorne just felt right at home in this story and just was a, a total fit within this story and I, I also think just her presence in there to speak to okoye's point not that it went off in, in all the ways that okoye hoped it would but um now, what was good for Shuri, not necessarily being in the field, although maybe that helped a bit, but I just think Riri Williams means a lot to Shuri in this story. And, and I think, you know, as somebody who was the little sister who lost the big brother, having a chance to be the mentor figure, not obviously not literally an, an older sister to uh, to Riri Williams, but playing a, a bit of that relationship in there, I, I think also uh, was helpful in uh, in Shuri's arc in this. Not that it solved everything, because obviously there was still a lot of anger that this movie uh, that is part of her arc that goes forward as uh, as everything is resolved. But um, as far as where it, we go from here, so we got to go to the garage to check some stuff out, and uh, you know because it's time to go make a run for it. I also like just going back to the dorm room scene. Like you can, I can take you conscious back to Wakanda, conscious or unconscious from Okoye. I thought it was that great and like calling her like tiny girl or whatever that was <laughs> like that was, uh, that was awesome. Um, just love Denai Guerrero as a Koye is just so, so good, uh, which I'll I'll talk a little bit more about as, as we uh, as we go on. But they go to a garage, which is a sanitation place where head of sanitation. Riri's been fixing some trucks for them. So they give her some space to work on her projects, including 
what Shuri wonders, is that Stark tech? It's Stark-ish. Uh, and when we see the, the Mark I version of the Ironheart suit in just a little bit. Also a car there that, Shuri, that Riri used to work on with her dad. A motorcycle. And now the feds are there. And that's a problem. So they have to make their getaway. And this leads us to a chase sequence. And I kind of like that this really did harken back to a little bit of the pacing of the first movie. Not, yeah, not exactly the same because we already had a big action sequence, of course, with, uh, well, not super big, but we had, you know, the attack for, uh, for Namor on the CIA and the Navy SEALs earlier in the film. But when we got, you know, we got a great chase sequence in South Korea in the first movie. And now we get this one through Cambridge, Massachusetts, as they are avoiding the feds. And I just like the different levels to this. I, I liked Okoye. Initially, Shuri's using her AI to pilot, to drive the car for Okoye as Shuri takes off on the bike. But once Okoye gains control, the way she uses the spear to flip one of the cop cars, that was a great action beat. And then adding another layer to the challenge of their being surveilled by a drone at 30,000 feet. There goes Riri Williams. And I, I was kind of laughing at this a little bit because they made oxygen the issue, but also, you know, freezing was an issue going back to the very first Iron Man. So uh, Riri with no head protection there probably would have got a bit cold, but she does pass out uh, true to the laws of oxygen, but she's able to take the drone out in the interim and regain conscious just in time before she hits the water. And, you know, the, the roadblock on the bridge and her using the discarded drone or whatever to just blow up that roadblock and lead us to that shot of the three of them, Shuri, Okoye, and uh, and Riri Williams in flight in the Mark I of the Ironheart suit. That just looks so cool. It's electric. It's fun. And I, I think that's where, we, again, we talk about the the tonal shifts. There's so much of this movie has been so deep and dark and heavy. And even the stakes here, like there's danger to this 19-year-old girl, but there's also a lot of fun to be had in this action sequence. And that is, uh, that's one of the great tricks that Ryan Coogler pulls throughout this movie is he's able to make these transitions, but he lets the tone come from the characters. As I said, when he wants to have a few laughs, give us some Baku when he wants to add some fun into, into this, give us this young character. Who's not necessarily burdened by, uh, at least certainly not on his personal uh, of a level, the grief that these other characters ex- are experiencing. So we just get to have fun with this character in this moment. And that helps these other characters who've been dealing with their grief have a little bit more fun in these moments until, of course, there's another attack from an even greater threat. But that's where I, I think Ryan Coogler does such a great job in this movie is with these transitions because they come from the characters. And that's what makes them organic within the story that's what also makes them seamless within the story it's not just someone told a joke because someone had to tell a joke or it's fun because this is supposed to be fun it's coming from who these characters are that's what makes it real yeah and you know i i think this whole action sequence was like i totally thought that the same thing it felt like the first film um and so yeah i I liked I again this is a fun thing. It definitely gave me shades of homecoming a little bit with the vulture scene in Iron Man uh in Spider-Man. So I thought it was uh, a kind of funny thing to think about. And also the fact that that uh Riri can like be audibly heard while she's going up like you know with <laughs> yeah, she's no got a mic in on. there somewhere. Yeah, I know. I I yeah, the, so. m- magic microphones and earpieces are are part and parcel in the MCU. 
absolutely. And I, just, I, I, I echo everything you said. Absolutely. And but get into the, I, I can't wait to talk about this next scene here. Yeah. So when we get the actual attack, because at this point, uh, Namor and, and everyone, they've they've detected that although Namor's not in this scene, they've clearly detected and they've been watching to see what the Wakandans would do with this scientist. And it's become pretty clear to them that Wakanda is probably not going to help. Um, and they, so they just make the demand to give up the scientist, which Okoye and Shuri um, are not going to do. Well, Shuri at this point is uh, is knocked out and Okoye is standing her ground. There are cops there. So Namora and uh, a few of the others, they go to take out the take out the witnesses, which leaves us with a one on one battle of Atuma. And Riri is also out at the moment. Uh, Atuma versus Okoye. This showdown was awesome. It was just warrior versus warrior Mm -hmm. that isn't really mutual respect yet because Atuma doesn't respect Okoye. And uh, but at least respects what Okoye is trying to do. And like, I'll have this one on one battle with you because why not? You're a warrior. I'm a warrior. This could be fun. And everything about this, like it's so visceral. It's impactful. It is. And also just by the way, like them jumping off whales like an orca for some of them like this. Ridiculous. This is so freaking cool. Mm -hmm. And I I think that, um, you know, I'll, I'll have more to say about that in a minute. But let's talk about the fight first. I'll just take it to the moment where it drives the spear into the ground and uses it to dislocate Okoye's shoulder. And then her like oh. snapping her arm, putting her arm back into the, into the socket, just that br- the brutality of that, but also just the toughness of these two characters going toe to toe. And obviously Okoye being outmatched. Like she, she defends that blow when he hits the spear, but what does it do? It makes her like, so she doesn't take the hit, but she slides back and, mm-hmm. Like there, she's just outmatched when it comes to the obviously the physical abilities of Atuma, but as far as the pure skill as a fighter, uh, th- this is where they are evenly matched, and this is what does make it a great showdown. And I like that this Okoye Atuma rivalry gets to be this little thing that uh, that it, that exists and is still you know, little compared to everything else going on in the movie, compared to like Namor versus Shuri, but. I like that this is something that gets revisited throughout the, of this warrior versus warrior and, and round one uh, is really great, man. This is see, and this is the thing about this movie that I was not anticipating was you had that great fight scene with, with the, uh, door, uh, Dorja Malaje, um, door Malaje, excuse me. I can't talk today. Any day, really. Um, you know, at the very, at the very beginning of the film and it's, it's super like good, right? It's awesome. And then it leads to this, right? And what I was not expecting to have a legit rad fight scene on a bridge with Okoye and Atuma uh, going at it and have it just be brutal and have it you feel every hit. And just the the action just feels different in this in this film specifically, Sean. And we'll get again, we'll, we'll really digest this all at the very end of the movie. But I just want to give a shout out to the you know, fight choreo- uh, choreographers and you know the, and Kugler and, and everyone, all the actors, you know, sub coordinators. It just, the, I can feel the brutality of this movie way more than any other film. And um, I thought No Way Home did a great job of having like brutal fight scenes too with Green Goblin and whatnot specifically um, during that um, when he gets revealed and everything. Um, but when this movie from start to finish has when the, when the fights come on, they come on and they it, do. it's, it's not, it's not like, you know, 
again, I love Multiverse of Madness to <laughs> death. They look and like they hurt. It, yeah, that's like all, you know, it's very much like, you know, supernatural, whatever. This is like full on, like it feels, it, you feel the hurt. And I just, I I don't know how I can explain it any better than that. I, it's, it's obviously not the greatest, but I don't know if anyone else, if you felt that way too, but it's just the, specifically this movie over a lot of the other MCU films, I felt the action way more. I think the action really became started becoming more visceral in the MCU, maybe not consistently in every project, but it really leveled up with Captain America, the Winter Soldier in 2014. I think the Russos brought a lot of that to their films and not everybody has and and not everybody should not every movie should have the same style of action and, and all of those things. And even there's a lot of this that is unique compared to what the Russos were doing, but um, it is it really works when when you do it well. And, and I think that's what we see in this is everything just the action in this, especially the the fight scenes in particular, they just have weight to them. And, and I think what makes it a particularly neat trick in this movie is we talk, you know, we're talking about a very visceral fight scene and, and others that we have in this story. But there's also just a lot of crazy, wacky, fantastical stuff like this is maybe one of the biggest uh, you know give some credit to Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame because they've got some you know pretty nutty stuff going on in those films as well but when you have the emotional heft of this movie that is so grounded on so many levels and yet you have outlandish spectacle at the same time like you have the grief at the center of this story and this very real emotionally authentic way as portrayed in this movie. But you've also got a guy with wings on his ankles and he flies with them and you've got characters riding on whales. Like it's just the kind of stuff that it's the kind of stuff where it almost feels like an either or proposition. Like you're going to go wacky and fantastical or you're going to be gritty and grounded. It's very rare to see any movie and even superhero movies do both at the same time. And uh, in a lot of times you feel like you wouldn't even try to do both because one's going to take away from the other. And Ryan Coogler has found a way to make all of those elements work together. And, and this isn't necessarily a first, but I mean, he had armored rhinos in the very first movie, right? So he's no stranger to this, but obviously it levels up in this movie and it works even better. And that's not to talk about a comparison of overall movie, but just the com the seamless combination of fantastical spectacle sort of stuff with the gritty and grounded emotional, um, you know, emotional authenticity all rolled into one. It's the type of thing you shouldn't be able to do. And yet Ryan Coogler has been able to do it just phenomenally well in in this story and it, this is a, a great example of it because yeah these guys just rode in on the backs of whales but then we're going to get a very visceral fight scene with a, a pretty gnarly shoulder dislocation move that is probably one of my favorite just single quick like you know fight scene action beats that we've had in the mcu up until this point i don't know why i mean i don't like seeing okoye get hurt but it's just i was not expecting that at all but it was uh very very impactful for okoye and for me, just watching as a, as an audience member. But the net result of this is 
Um, Okoye gets taken out by a water bomb because Nomura is not into this one-on-one fight business that Atuma is carrying on with. And speaking of Atuma, you know, shout out to Alex Livinali, uh, but then also uh, Mabel Cadena, who plays Namora. They are both excellent uh, in this. And so uh, Okoye gets tossed into the water. Shuri is there, and she invokes her royalty for as the princess of Wakanda. So they don't attack her. They take her and Riri with them because Shuri demands to see Namor. And then, of course, off we go. So what happened here, the net result of this scene, it is exactly what Ramonda was worried about. And so when Okoye is back in Wakanda saying that she wants to lead the charge to go retrieve the princess, Ramonda is not in the mood to hear that. Ramonda is there to strip Okoye of her rank as general and as a member of the Dora Milaje because now... Okoye, even though Ramonda warned her of this danger and warned her against taking Shuri with her on that mission, Okoye argued in favor of taking Shuri and then lost Shuri to the very enemy, to the very threat that Ramonda was worried about in the first place. And as Okoye tries to argue or speak for, I mean, she asks for permission and then speaks on her own behalf about how she's given everything to Wakanda, Ramonda has her own version of how she's given everything to Wakanda and also recaps Okoye's history. Because when somebody try when one of the other tribal leaders tries to talk about on behalf of, you know, advocate for Okoye for a moment, and even I'm feeling that guy because I'm like, yeah, Okoye's done amazing things for Wakanda, including, as he points out, raised a spear to her own husband for the sake of uh for the sake of Wakanda. But Ramona points out, yeah, but that's a husband she can go visit. I can't visit my husband. I can't visit my son. And now I don't know if my daughter is alive or dead, but I definitely can't visit her because even if she's alive, I don't know where she is. And Okoye was the one who argued to take her on that mission when I argued against it. So that is not something that I am, I am not in the mood to be merciful toward Okoye or give Okoye the benefit of the doubt. Let's also remember that when Killmonger took the throne, Okoye and the Dora Milaje, reluctant or not, they stood by Killmonger because that is what their tradition, their loyalty, their oath to their pledge to the throne demanded of them. So Okoye was not there to protect, to help protect uh, Ramonda as she, uh, Ramonda or Shuri, as they had to go reach out to Umbaku and the Jabari for help. Uh, also, Nakia being there as well. So that. That recap, that rundown for Ramonda, because this is very hard to do. This is very hard because we as an audience love Okoye and we have seen her do amazing things, amazing acts of heroism in this franchise, but also with the Avengers. We've seen her do all these things. And Okoye, I would say, is probably my favorite character within this Wakandan corner of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, I love this character and I was wanting her to become the next Black Panther. And so as a lot of fans did. And so I think it's very hard to have a scene where you see this character being stripped of her rank, being stripped of her status as Dora Milaje, and actually buy that someone would do that to her. But the writing and then Angela Bass's performance, this in particular, it it might be too big for an Oscar clip because this is a, a very big performance that she's giving here, but it is true to the moment. 
as the anger just rises within Ramonda and all of this, like she is the queen of the most powerful nation in the world and her entire family is gone. So when you talk about who's given everything to Wakanda, nobody has given more, nobody has lost more at this moment in time than Ramonda. And so her response to this and what she says to Okoye, what she does to Okoye, it rings true for her. Would I make the same decision? No, but I have not been through all that Ramonda has been through and what she's experiencing in that moment. So to take a character that the audience likes, loves in Okoye, and have somebody do something against her, but not necessarily come out of it with any animosity toward Ramonda, because you totally understand where she's coming from and why she feels the way that she does, and also being able to illustrate that Okoye isn't exactly perfect, despite all of the good things that she's done, and how all of that is uh, fed into the, the, the decision that Ramonda makes. It's a very difficult thing to do to get me to buy into that, I, I think, as an, or audiences in general, to get everybody to, to buy into that moment. And maybe for some of you, it didn't work. I don't know. Um, but for me, it, it, it totally did. And it's just another unbelievably good moment by Angela Bassett when we talk about her performance. It just keeps coming up in this film. Yeah. And I, I got to tell you, man, I, again, I, I go back to the writing of the script and everything and, and how, you know, I, I, I there's a lot of there's, there's a there are good MCU series of Disney plus series, but I just feel that the, the, the movie medium, Sean just fits Marvel so well. And maybe I'm just, I'm used to it. I don't know, but I love this. Such a, it's such a tight story we're getting with this, in my opinion. And this is a moment that I, I, I really liked because I, because you could see the perspective of both characters on the earlier with Okoye and then here with Rwanda. And, you know, I just think that I get both, I get both. You get, you understand both sides and mm-hmm. you can understand where she's at as the queen and saying like, I trusted you, you failed me. She is literally the last thing I have. Get the hell out. Like, yep. I, I, I get it. Like, I, I'm like, I love Okoye. But she's right. Well, like, and Okoye doesn't even offer an argument after that. Like after yep, yep. Ramonda says that, there's no response. Okoye just puts her spear in the ground and, and walks yep. away. She knows at that point, like this conversation's over. Yeah, yeah. And I, like you said, like there is when she says, "I have sacrificed everything," you know, and what have you sacrificed? It's like, damn. Like I'm just like, damn. Like I mean, she Bassett just brings it, man. And you just feel it. And I, I, I just love, again, it, it's going back to the themes of sacrifice and grief and, you know, what people are willing to, to do for their country, you know, these countries. And, you know, look, and look at Namor is, is like, he doesn't have any actual, you know, children of, of his own at this point um, that we know of. And, but he looks at all his people as this, you know, they're an extension of that. And that's kind of where he's at a little bit. It's again, not one for one, but there's there's shades of it, and I, I and I like the idea of you're kind of you know, you can understand the perspective of everyone in this movie, even though you may not agree with all their decisions, whether you know where you fall on, right? And I I like that idea because life is complex, and that's the one thing I love about this movie, Sean. And I think that again, I know I'm not gonna get too far ahead of here, but I do like the idea that where these characters are in every different aspect, you can kind of understand where their perspective is and, and maybe not agree with them, but there is that understanding that relatability 
it really plays on the aspect of where we're at as people and that where we are sometimes is we need to grow and we need to be better. And sometimes we just, if we don't see past what our own grief, our own hatred, whatever, whatever that is. And I think that really is interesting here. We see that even oh, people they love, you know, and I'll get probably a little bit deeper into this later on, obviously, but you see shades of it here. And I love that. And again, Kugler just, and, and his writing partner, I, I saw the on there. It's, this is, this is great stuff, man. And I it just, I am going to say this a lot through, during this review, great scenes, great, great acting. But I think the story here is just so, so tight for a long movie is what they're doing. It's so tight and it makes sense. I love it. I love this scene. Yeah. This one is uh, definitely one of the highlights of the movie. It's not like a super, obviously not at all a joyful scene. It's, it's not enjoyable in the sense that you like what's happening here, but it's, it really is the power of the performances that just are are so overwhelming in in such Mm -hmm. a really strong and, and moving way. And, and it's just, it's great. And, and so, you know, to try and break some of that tension, I mean, you get to, we're back to, you know, the aftermath of this situation, the bridge, and I may be a little out of order on how the scenes, act, when they actually show up in yeah. the movie, but, um, and I'm going off of two viewings, doing my best, but Come on, yeah, you know, yeah. with back in the U S yeah. on the bridge, like, you know, Ross had previously mentioned a, a new director on the, of, on the CIA, who's watching him very closely. And I'm like, I know exactly who this is going to be. And so when uh, when Don't Call Her Val actually shows up, as played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus on the bridge in the aftermath of the fight scene that we talked about, oh, man. You, you talk about just a performer being able to do a lot with a little, because I don't know. How, I mean, how much screen time does Val, does Don't Call Her Val have in this, in this movie? Like, I don't know, three minutes? Like, it, it's really not a lot, but... Right out the gate, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I, I am wondering, though, like for... Because this is a bigger movie than a lot of Marvel yeah. movies. You know, in terms of yeah. box office and everything, obviously the popularity of the first film and all the many, many reasons that people are going to want to check this movie out. Did they see the post credit scene in Black Widow? Have they seen... Uh, <laughs> have they seen uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Like, this is not necessarily a character who's popped up in the biggest MCU project so far. So for those of us who already know her, like, yeah, this totally makes sense. Uh, But for an audience meeting her for the first, who might be meeting her for the first time, although I know a lot of people, if they don't catch these things in theaters, catch up on Disney Plus or whatever else, but not everybody sees everything with the MCU. We know that much by now. And so I think even if you had no idea that Julia Louis-Dreyfus actually had a part in the MCU, you love this anyway, or you have the opportunity to love this anyway, because she just takes over instantly like just her command of this role like immediately when the guy's like oh yeah i'm the special agent in charge she's like yeah good for you you want to show me what's going on here like that i just i loved her like hitting on ross and then you realize like okay there was a marriage between these two characters i love that that's an element between uh val or you know director dave fontaine and everett ross i like that dynamic i think that's going to be fun will probably factor into uh, Thunderbolts in, in some respect as we get toward that movie. And I think a lot of what uh, Va- Don't Call Her Val is up to in this story is going to set things up for uh, for Thunderbolts or certainly hinting at uh, a lot of the initiatives that she's got going on, the agendas, what her j- hopes, her dreams are. Because, yeah, she even mentions like it's a dream of hers that the U.S. would be the only country in the world with vibranium. 
I don't know that that's ever going to come true for her, but it'd be interesting to see how she might try to achieve it uh, if that factors into anything we see her in uh, later on down the line. Uh, but she was really great in this and, and the back and forth between the two of them. And, you know, throughout it, like in, in the car later when Ross is having to pretend that he's on the phone with a new girlfriend. And then later on in in the house when she ad, when she admits that she reveals that she bugged the Camoyo beads and just calls herself Director De Fontaine after she makes fun of him for calling her that uh, earlier on and bring, uh, brings out the cuffs. Everything about her and also just being one step ahead of Ross. Like he thinks he's being slick, but he's totally not. Uh, she's on it from the jump, and I, I just I, I thought she was so good in this. Julia Lee Dreyfus is just such a wonderful addition to the MCU. I'm good. I'm going to echo everything you said. The one thing that I I would say that I I actually think this is a great introduction to her, whether you know her or not, and I, I yeah. you know whatever. And I think that's the the beauty of again the performance. I mean Dreyfus is incredible, and I love her. And I think, again, going back to the writing, I think they Coogler did a natural, you've already built up Ross at this point, and then now there's an you know, obstacle. And again, they obviously are in line with Marvel because you're dropping important hints of where he's yeah. probably going to line up later on with her and Thunderbolts potentially. Just really interesting stuff here. And again, I, to be honest, Sean, I'm going to go on a wild, I'm going to say, I'm probably, this is a, a ridiculous number, but I'm going to go on a limb and say, I would not be shocked if over half the people watching Wakanda Forever didn't don't know who that was. And you know what? And I would bet 95% of them – I'm just being stupid here. I don't even give a crap. <laughs> I would bet 95% of them have an idea of where she – who she is now and understand, like, if she would show up later on and have no problems. So that, that's how well I think she was – how well it was written and how well it was constructed. And you know she's important, but – it, it, she, it, she does a lot with a little, and that's all you need. It's, it's bam, bam, bam. We're good. So I think this is a great, a great short little short and sweet, if you will. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that even for those of us who have seen the character in Black Widow and in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which I know is probably most of the people, you and I, obviously, and most of the people listening to this podcast, if not all of the people listening to this podcast, and it's okay if you're not, and this is the first time you saw her, but... I think that we didn't really know her after those appearances. Like, we don't really know anything about her. We know her full name, like, you know, Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine. We know that she's been recruiting some people who are now, you know, some of whom are on the roster that's been announced for Thunderbolts. We know that much, but we don't really know who she is, where she comes from. Like, we didn't even know that she had any sort of official capacity within the U.S. government, but here she is as a director of the CIA. Like, that's a big deal that we didn't exactly know about this character. And now we got a little bit of uh, personal history and personal stakes for this character um, I, I we, that we had no idea about. So I definitely think that you get enough information to take this character at face value just uh, upon this meeting with her, whether regardless of what you do or don't know about her previous appearances in the MCU. This one is, is much more revealing than any of those. But of course, I don't know that anything is truly revealing for director De Fontaine because, again, she seems to be a few steps ahead of everyone else, and she they only know what she allows them to know or wants them to know, as is certainly the case with Everett Ross. But checking back in with Shuri and Riri as they are being kept in a cave, and then we see that Shuri is presented with 
um, a new outfit that is, you know, fit for a princess to go have her meeting with Namor. And I love Riri Williams pointing out like this is some super villain shit when she talks about Princess Leia or she talks about uh, the white lady from Indiana Jones. Like I, just that move of the villain of giving the woman hostage a, a fancy dress. Although, to be fair, Shuri asked to go. She's not technically a hostage. She demanded or requested a meeting with uh, with Namor, which uh, Namor also points out when he later on uh, speaks with Ramonda that he didn't. Uh, his people did not technically kidnap Shuri. But anyway, this meeting that we get between Shuri and Namor, which gives us the history of Namor, the history of Talokan. As he points out, uh, the, you know, how this happened and how anything happened, it's never as important as why. And we get the history of this story where it was a, uh, it, at the time that his mother was pregnant with him, his mother was human and then became something else. It was a shaman who was led to a plant, and that obviously that's a vibranium enriched plant that their people took and including after initially uh, having some reservations about it, she ultimately took it. Namor's mother, while she was pregnant with him, he was going to be their king, the king of their people, the first one who would be born in the ocean and all or be born as they were in their new selves. Yeah, they figuratively died on land and then were reborn in the ocean. Now they could breathe uh, underwater, could not breathe on land. Namor will be the one, the only one who could do both with the wings on his ankles and the pointy ears and points out, and as he actually just flat out says the word, he is a mutant. Uh, so there's that M word in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, not just something else in a music cue, but there it is, the M word mutant in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But this whole this whole history of Namor, I, I thought was just incredible. I mean, it, it was beautiful with the storytelling Obviously, working off of Yucatec Mayan history and allowing that to be part of the story. And, you know, and that's where Marvel's version of Atlantis in this story becomes Talokan. And all of that, I, I thought was just uh, it was great. Like I we we had seen I had seen the rumors like everybody else. I mean, I, I tried to avoid as much of this stuff as possible. But, you know, the rumors around a lot of this and, you know, the Mayan influence for Namor and how that was going to be a part of it, it became pretty clear that that it was going in that direction. And I thought that was just such an exciting way to have, you know, exciting choice for Namor. And when we talk about Ryan Coogler creating space for people, like if he's talking about an African culture untouched by colonization to go into a, you know, a, a Latinx culture untouched by civil, un, untouched by colonization, um, you know, as Wakanda was and what that could be and just that sort of that sort of dream. But then also how desperate one would be to protect uh, a thing like that. There's just something about the way Ryan Coogler creates space for people and expands on cultural ideas and, and, and dreams and, and an idealism within that. But also the complicated, the moral complexity that comes with it that makes it far from ideal there's just something about that and, and how layered his storytelling is uh, and how he's able to bring that forward in his uh, in his movies in, in ways that are clear and yet murky at the same time. As I said, when you get to the, the morality that comes with it. But all of this was so great. And when we saw that, of course, you know, Tenoch Huerta was going to be playing 
uh, Namor and knowing that they were going to have, um, you know, going into the Yucatec Mayan culture, but also there was certainly some of Mexican culture that was incorporated into that, Central American culture, and certainly the Spanish language being a part of that. I know that's not the uh, mother tongue, it's Yucatec Mayan that they speak as their mother tongue uh, for the people of Talocan, but Spanish is also there, and the way they they had the the origin of the name Namor, which, as far as I know, that's definitely not part of the comic books. That when Namor went to bury his mother, honor her last, honor her dying wish, that she be buried on the surface where she was born, and you know, return to the surface world where she was born uh, upon her death, and then he sees that colonization happening, and he battles against it and finds this place for his mom. But then the person who tells him uh, that he was called, you know, calls him the Nino sin amor, child without love. And that's how he takes his name, Sinamor, uh, and says Namor, and the way he pronounces it. Because I did wonder if there would be a Spanish pronunciation of Namor and, and using Namor uh, in this movie, and they totally did. And, and the way they use that language to create and be uh, the or the origin of the name, I, I thought was a, a really, really wonderful touch and, and very inventive. And I, I just thought it was totally not how I thought they could... I didn't even know what I thought they were going to do or how they were going to come up with the name or if they would just say, like, this is my name just because this is my name, because that's all that's kind of all it ever was, really, um, in the comic books. There wasn't necessarily a big significance to the name, but the way they gave that name significance and, and made it part of the character and part of his perspective, his philosophy, his experience, his life uh, within all of this, uh, I, I thought was really, really great. So great piece of writing and then also... Great performances throughout this. I mean, uh, Maria Mercedes Coroy, uh, who played his mother in this flashback. Also, very briefly, the, the young uh, Namor, played by Man- Manuel Chavez. This was fantastic. Like, I, I this backstory for Talocan, for Namor or Namor, was fantastic. Yeah, this is where I'm going to say that uh, N- N- Namor is... 1000% won it for me because before we get into the origin, Sean, I, one of the, again, I talked about the important aspect of, of Namor is that you have to, there has to be a charming sensibility to him and he has to make sense. He's an anti-hero. He's going to make a lot of decisions you're going to disagree with. You could see where, where he would come to his conclusion and, and do that. But but not to he can't be a kingpin, right? And that's kind of the problem when you do sympathetic villains. He can't even be as bad as Loki, right? He has to lose his temper. He has to do wrong things. But you have to kind of understand that perspective and see a little bit of where he's coming from to to not just outright say he's like just an awful awful thing and he can't be redeemed, et cetera, et cetera. Even more than Loki, and it's a fine line to go, and it's hard. He's a difficult character to write. That's why I think. Um, a big reason why his comic book series is never really always flourished like a Daredevil or something like that, where even on a biweekly basis or bi-monthly basis back in the you know, 70s and 80s or whatever, when these uh, these lesser known characters were, were being released, um, you know, he kind of just struggled because he's a tough nut to crack in a sense to where he is a complex character. And when this scene really solidifies, like Coogler nailed it 1000 percent. And the actor, and again, I'm terrible with names, um, he destroyed it. Like, just absolutely obliterates 
any qualm I had I had going into this film. He looks amazing. And now I'm like, yeah, he is Namor. I freaking love this. And when he's explaining, first of all, before I can get the origin, when he says he's a mutant, I was like, God damn. <laughs> I was like, God damn. Because when I was a kid, you know, if you're born with powers, you're a mutant. Like, I don't care if you're an alien, you know, like, it's like, because that's classic X-Men, right? <clears throat> if you're like, they'd have like aliens join the team. And I'm like, well, that's, they're technically a mutant because they're born that way. Right. So hey, it works, you know, like long shot. I'm like, is he a mutant? Uh, I guess you can kind of, you know, whatever. Right. I, I'm splitting hairs here. But one of the things I always thought was interesting, even when I was a kid, I'm like, you know, Namor is a mutant, right? Like he's, because he's born that way. He technically is a mutant, I guess you could say. And then, you know, what do they have on the uh, comic books in the 90s that John Byrne was writing and drawing? It says, Marvel's first and mightiest mutant, Namor. You know, and I'm like, okay, I, I, get, I get it, right? Um, so the fact that, you know, because obviously, in, in, in the, and for people who don't know, really quickly, quick history lesson here, Aquaman and Namor are basically like, one, they're like identical origins. They're identical. And just like in the comic books, you know, for Aquaman, uh, Namor is like literally his mom is, you know, a Atlantean, you know, has, you know, falls in love with a human. They have Namor and all the rest is history. It's literally one for one. So I knew they had to change it. What I love about, you know, you know uh, took a lot. Uh, oh, my God. I can't. See, I'm terrible with names. How do you pronounce the city again? It's um, Talokan. Telokan. Uh, I said it right earlier, I thought. Um, Telokan. They obviously had to change it from Atlantis to Telokan, which, I, again, knew that their origin was going to change. I'm cool with that. This was 1,000% amazing because you established the fact that these are not just Atlanteans. They were created from the Vibranium, which, okay, awesome. Great groundwork to show for different things. Also funny, they're blue. Nightcrawler, Mystique, Beast. I rest my case. Um, so... I'm like, okay, like they're they're blue on the surface. They're 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 you know normal skin underwater. Interesting. I'm into this. Okay, I love this different aspect. You're, you're adding that whole they're they've been modified, so there's going to be a modification through you know land, water, whatever. And the fact that he is the first, and that he doesn't you know he's a mutant and he's he evolved from this. I'm like, holy crap, that's incredible. I love this. Like it was, I couldn't, you couldn't explain it any better in my opinion and then have a, a more, a better origin story. And I got to tell you too, as, as a Namor fan, um, as someone who literally was nervous about the, the wings on the feet, like how that was going to look, it was a little jarring at first, but like they, they nail it. Like, I'm like, man, they, I'm all about the wings on the feet now. I'm like, okay, they they, they did this justice. I'm so about it because of the physics of it. Like, he doesn't fly the way other characters fly. Yes, yes. You know, like he, I mean, he moves like he's an athlete, like planting his foot and cutting in the sky. Like, because they're right there on his ankles. Like, his change of direction with it. But also, like, he, you know, like the little hovering that he can do with it. Like, it's just the way he has it. Like, he... He flies unlike any character I've seen flying, and obviously we've seen plenty of characters fly in superhero movies, but the way he does it is very unique to him, and it shows, well, yeah, it's a unique form of propulsion with little ankle wings, and so I love it. And look, it's the total, it's the kind of thing that 
you wouldn't have a lot of people wouldn't have even begrudged Ryan Coogler for leaving out, but Ryan Coogler's like, no, that's part of it. It's in there. And and that's what I mean when I talk about that Ryan Coogler can have here's this character who is emotionally grounded as emotionally grounded as you could ask for because you get to see his perspective and it's all portrayed so beautifully by Tenoch Huerta but then you have so you get that but he's also this just inherently fantastical character and it all still works and having wings on his ankles doesn't take away from the sincerity of this character from the empathy that you might feel toward this character you obviously don't agree with his mission, but you at least get a chance to understand the why. And, and I like the, even before he starts talking his backstory, like just the fact that he's taking that time and he, when Shuri is there, like he invites her in as a guest and he speaks to her like respectfully, like we're both leaders of our people. We care about our people. I need you to know not just the how, but why for my people and why for me and, and what, what's at stake here for me, like where we came from, what we've been able to uh, save ourselves from and stay away from much in the way uh, that Wakanda in the same way that Wakanda was able to protect itself from colonization. So were we, and we want to be able to preserve that. And, you know, we don't want anything to, we, we really don't want anything to jeopardize that. Like, I know you don't agree with my decision to kill the scientists, but this is where, uh, this is why I feel like I have to do it. And I think that's part of, that's Namor, and that's part of what makes him such a great antagonist in this movie, but also in Marvel stories, is like, look, this guy right here, yes, wanting to kill, and and by the way, side note, really bad time to be a teenager right now in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because two out of the three, uh, two out of the last three movies that we've had in the MCU have revolved around characters wanting to murder teenagers with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and now Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So rough time to be a teen in the MCU. But nevertheless, um, it's obviously a decision nobody, no reasonable person is going to agree with. But um, what Namor is more concerned about is not preserving one life on the surface world, but protecting all of the lives down below and then, uh, but it's not just about the story in, in telling you the story, let me show you. And when he takes Shuri to Talokan, I, I just, I loved it. I, I thought this whole sequence in, in Talokan was just, it was beautiful. It, it was yeah. fantastic in, in the way that it looked. And what I also loved is I was like, look, uh, and this isn't a shot at Aquaman. I like the way Aquaman looked. I know not everybody loves that movie, but I thought visually I was a big fan of Aquaman. This has its own unique underwater civilization look, very different from Aquaman's Atlantis, Mm -hmm. but it still looks very, very real within the context of of what it is we're doing here in the MCU. And it just looked great. The whole tour through it, I mean, them using kind of the, the currents and being able to create those currents for faster transportation through the ocean and then getting into and, and around Talokan and her being able to see the beauty of it. So now it's like you see, you know, this is, Wakanda was something that people wanted to protect. This is what I want to protect, and I can't allow anything to jeopardize this. And, and what's great about movies, when, when a movie can do something like this, is like obviously we're – We've seen big action sequences already in this movie. We're going to see even bigger action sequences in these movies. But you have these characters who are on opposing sides 
you get a chance to understand each side's perspective, but also they get the chance to understand each side's perspective. And it doesn't mean the battles don't happen. They inevitably do. But taking the time to have Shuri and Namor talk about this and how she's saying that she wants a peaceful resolution, there has to be some other way besides killing the scientist, killing Riri Williams in order to solve this problem. But now Namor is saying that it's no longer just about the scientist. It's about more than that. That look, now that this has happened, whether this scientist, whether Riri's around or not, this pursuit of vibranium is not going to stop. It is inevitable that the world is going to find Talokan and rather than sit back and, and wait to be attacked, Namor wants to go on the offensive and he wants Wakanda as an ally and saying that, look, the world is already attacking Wakanda. They will keep attacking Wakanda. So it's better that we join up and we wage war on the surface world. And oh, by the way, I overheard you the other night talking about wanting to burn the whole world to the ground, uh, which was not really the context of what Shuri said or necessarily meant. Um, but at the same time, like he's he's trying to use that to bond and, and show that he wants to do this. And does Namor really want to destroy the entire world because he doesn't, you know, well, I mean, his name comes from having no love for the surface world. But I, I think really what he's driving at is from his perspective, it's all about protecting Talo Khan, that now it, it's inevitable. It, it's too late to avoid any sort of war. So it's better to go on the offensive and win that war before anybody even know before the world even knows who exactly they're gonna they want to go to war with. Um, you get his perspective. You don't agree with it, but at the or maybe you do. I don't know. Now maybe we'll have some Namor was right, just like we had Killmonger was right and Thanos was right. I don't know. That's probably going to be a hashtag at some point if it isn't already. But I, I think giving these characters this time. It works on a lot of levels because it it's, it it, cre- it promotes that empathy. It gives a connection between the characters, even characters who are at odds with each other. But also, when they have the inevitable violent conflict, it makes it that much more tragic because you see that there are characters who tried to have conversations to avoid it and just uh, and just couldn't because situations escalated. Yeah, I. I everything about this whole thing with with, with Nemo is like basically like. First of all, I also love the fact that he gives him a memento of his mother mm-hmm. or gives her. And I think that and obviously what it turns into later on. But there's there is that olive branch of, again, there, it gives you a sense of he trusts Shuri, which play, which go, which again, not only plays into her becoming Black Panther, but ending the conflict at the end of the freaking movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so brilliant because it's it plays off the fact of forgive me for this word humanity of name of Namor, and you're basically like it, it, that comes back into play of him and his mother and the ties that he gives her of ending the conflict, and I I love this I and I did I kind of missed out on that a little bit the first time, and it really hit harder for me the second time. And when he gives it to her and I'm like, man, like there is, there's a cool chemistry between the two characters. And I love that. And there, I, I not, it almost felt like, cause Nemo is always kind of seeking out like love. And I think there is that uh, abandonment of isolation that 
because he's a prince and she's a princess. I, it, it never got that. There was a, um, it wasn't overly done, I thought. But I felt a little bit kind of – you can read into it a little bit to me. At least I did because Nimor is always pursuing that. He's he's infatuated with, with um, I think, finding that the, the significant other. And there is a sense of trust that he is – you know, he is trusting. There is something there and, and a peacefulness to him. Um, and I don't know. I, I just – but I love the fact that there was that – he gave her something that really meant a lot to him. And that was not – and I really felt like that was a genuine thing, Sean. Like, I never felt like it was just him being like, oh, yeah, it's my mom's. Here you go. Like it, it, it was literally him knowing whether it was manipulating her like for the very end, which you could argue that as well, which, again, plays into the brilliance of the acting, the writing and staying true to the character. But it felt so genuine but also what it could, you know, what he potentially could be doing to set up to protect his people as well, which he talks about at the end of the movie. So again, love this scene. This yeah. is brilliantly done. I think when he gave it to her, I don't think that was part of the long con because I don't think when he gave it to her, he was anticipating losing the initial war with Wakanda. I, I, I think I that, you know, why go through all that? Uh, just, just win. Um, but uh, I, I think just it was, win, baby. Yeah, I, I think it was more <laughs> along the lines of wanting to having the respect wanting to bond with her and and because like i think he genuinely respects them i think he genuinely respects yeah. ramonda i think he genuinely respects shuri but his chief priority above all else is to protect his people and he's going to do that in whatever way he sees fit in in customs with ways that look they're very good at killing people. They haven't just started in this story. They've been doing this for a, a long time. And he's even saying, like, I've had my, pe- you know, we've perfected the ways of war, everything that we need to do to protect ourselves. Like, they're ready. And they've been through, uh, they've been through all of this. So I, I think that because number above all else, even taking innocent lives and, you know, collateral damage and whatever the case may be, it all comes down to being able to preserve their people, their way of life. They don't want to ever have to change for anyone else, lose their culture, lose their identity. They never want to have to do it because they've seen they've literally seen it happen in what was the home of uh, of his mother. So they, they never want and they know it's happened, of course, all over the world. So they don't want to see that happen uh, at any point. And that's what they are going to fight against uh, at any cost. So. I can like you, I can respect you, I can give you a gift, but ultimately, if you get in the way of what I feel is necessary to protect my people, then we are at war, and that means what that means. Um, And that sort of morality, that sort of, you know, that code of ethics for uh, Namor obviously comes into play, has been coming into play in the story, and will so on an even more tragic level uh, in just a little bit in this story. But um, meanwhile, uh, Ramonda has been working, has been uh, reaching out to Nakia, meets up with her in Haiti, and we meet uh, a, a young man played by Divine Love, Conadu uh, Sun, who we don't know who he is yet. We will in the mid credit scene, and we will, we will talk about that young man. But uh, Ramonda is there talking about Nakia, and we find out a little bit more about what Nakia has been up to, that she left Wakanda about six years ago. So timeline-wise, yes, it's been a year since T'Challa died. You tack on five more years to get up to six. So yeah, she left right around the time that T'Challa would have disappeared 
at the start of the blip, which she confirms in her timeline uh, a little bit later on when she has a conversation with uh, with Okoye. But Ramonda is reaching out to it. And this was where if I did have some nitpicks in, in the movie, it really is more for me, Nakia and Okoye. I, I do feel, I don't feel as strongly about Okoye. I think on the second viewing, I was happier with her role in the film. But um, Nakia, it, it just felt to me like she comes into the story very, very late. Um, I, I think they do a good job of explaining, you know, her absence in other MCU stories. Like, why is she not there in Endgame? And, and why uh, is she not there at the start of this story? And what has she been up to? And I think the mid credit scene goes a long way in fixing, you know, the the underutilization of that character in this story. But even though I would have liked to have seen more of Nakia in this movie, what we do get, going back to Ryan Coogler, like even if this story doesn't necessarily have the same place for Nakia that the last one did, every moment with her still counts and every moment with her rings true when it comes to her reasons for not being there. And of course, the authenticity of that, like you buy it even more uh, when you get to the mid credit scene. But um, it was nice to finally see her. But why does Ramonda want to reach out to Nakia? Well, she's not in the mood to give Okoye a chance to save Shuri. But Nakia has infiltrated many countries in her time and done so uh, without being noticed. So she seems, as a spy, the person who is best fit to go retrieve Shuri. And she does, after Nakia is able to uh, interview a Namor witness in the Yucatan Peninsula, is able to get... uh, uh, create a hunch that will lead her to that underwater cave where she will find uh, where she will find Shuri. And in that rescue attempt, uh, one of the women of Talokan is killed. And that is the first blood that is spilled in what is now the war between Wakanda and Talokan. And that moment where Namor, who is the god of his people, the, fa- the you know, figurative father of his people, the protector of his people, well, here he has failed to protect one of his people. One of his people has died at the hands of a Wakandan. And this is after his warning, because he has that uh, another meeting. And this one is on a daylight, sunny beach, Paul, for the second conversation Finally. between Namor and Ramonda. And I, I like that he also clarifies, like, I have not kidnapped the princess. She asks to meet with me. And you don't want to go to war with me. I am warning you once again. So uh, it's it's all about uh, you know, Wakanda is going to have to help us. Wakanda is going to have to join us in our war with the service world. And if I see anybody, if I see any of your ships in the ocean, that's it. We're at war. I'm going to kill the princess. I'm going to come to Wakanda. I'm going to kill your people. I'm going to kill you so he it's, is it's basically like the second the the first scene but flipped that they first meet right yeah it's like it's, it's the extension of that in a brighter day it's awesome yeah but uh, a darker conversation because now the threats yeah. are are more specific they're more direct and violent and i mean it's it's the same similar threats but at the same time like it's it's taking on a different urgency it's taking on a different level and so that was the warning that he gave in in that really great scene and then and of course, doesn't see a Wakandan ship, but it is a Wakandan who comes in and saves Shuri. And, and again, blood is uh, blood is spilled. And that just plays into the tragedy of it, right? Because now you know what Namor is going to do. If there was any hope for a peaceful resolution, 
Namor, who was already leaning toward war, now he's going to feel like he's already at war because one of his people has been killed in this process. And and then, of course, we see him going in and, and speaking to his people and, and finding fault within himself for being you know blinded by hope for peace and hope for an alliance with Wakanda. Um, but that's not going to happen. So it's it's Rise Dalokan, and they're going to go to war with Wakanda. And I really like how fast this moves. I, I know you mentioned earlier how fast it moves when you go from uh, when you go from seeing the initial attack with Namor at the uh, you know for the CIA and the Navy SEALs, and then you you kind of almost right away see Namor. And it's kind of hard for me to argue against some of the abrupt transitions and, and some of the quick pacing in this story because it is still a two hour and 40 minute movie uh that we are now uh, about to exceed in the length of our review uh, that's okay not at all the first time we've done that so i i think that with this one it's also kind of abrupt where it's it's rallying the troops to war and then we see the attack very soon after but that works for me because I, I don't think that Namor would hesitate. I don't think it would be, oh, we've decided to go to war. Now let's hang out for a few weeks and then do it. It's like, no, we're we're going to go do this. So, I mean, we do get some, uh, we do get a little bit of a break, right? Ramonda gets a chance to meet Riri Williams and everybody gets to explain to Riri that, you know, I know we would love to send you back home, but now's not a safe time for you to do that. Um, and then Okoye and Nakia are reunited and we get to learn a little bit more about Nakia and her perspective and, and what she explains, it works for me. It, it makes sense in that, look, when T'Challa disappeared, she couldn't just pretend that life was going on. There's also another element to it that she's not sharing, so that also allows it all to uh, to make uh, to make sense. And I think that Lupita Nyong'o, just as an actor, she is so good that she doesn't necessarily need a, a whole lot in order to really get you to invest in where her character is emotionally in this story. And so that's where I, I think it works. I I still feel like this story could use a little more Nakia and get her involved in the story a little bit earlier on. But I also understand you kind of needed to have another card for Ramonda to play once she moved uh, removed Okoye from the equation. So it, it does make sense and it does work, even if the net result is maybe not quite getting as much Nakia uh, as I would have wanted in this movie. But that's also just a testament to what Lupita Nyong'o has done with that character, that you just want to see more of that character um, in this. And I and I really hope, because I know we only saw her in Black Panther. We see her in this movie. I know she doesn't necessarily play a larger role across the MCU. And, and some of that is probably her and her schedule and what she wants to do. Um, but hopefully there, there's more Nakia to be found. And, and certainly... Uh, there would be reason for that based on what we see uh, in the mid credit scene that we will get to. But just as soon as we've caught up with Okoye and Nakia, there's water on the ground and they know, and Okoye just knows right away what it means. We're under attack. And as soon as she finishes saying it, boom, Wakanda is under attack from Talokan. And this was this whole sequence. I mean, it's uh, it's right out of the comic books. Atlantis at one point did flood Wakanda. I mean, it's different circumstances and how it all went about. But at the same time, like the net result is a devastating attack from Talokan, from Namor and his people on the Wakandans. And we see this in, in Wakanda, not used to being outmatched, but here they are not used to being overpowered. But that is what's happening here. But you still see like just great heroism, you know, Okoye, uh, saving the little boy. 
you see Umbaku as he sees people jumping into, uh, as the siren song plays, people are jumping into the river as others are being dragged into the river. Like he just springs into action, but then also giving him a moment to be amazed, like looking underwater and being like, holy crap, there's whales here. Uh, (laughs) And people are riding on them. Like this is just absolutely insane. But um, you see uh, Wakandan stepping up and fighting and, you know, fighting heroically in, in all the ways that they can, but they are just completely overmatched. Meanwhile, Ramonda is at the palace there to protect Riri, but the defenses have been lured away from the palace, as Namora points out. So now it is Namor's time to strike. And at first, he just tries to break the glass, can't do that. So he just unleashes a lot of those uh, water bombs. And the net result is Ramonda is able to save Riri from drowning, but not able to save herself. And Ramonda has been killed by Namor. So the first blood was spilled by Nakia, and then a lot more was spilled by Namor and uh, his army from Talokan. And I I do have some mixed feelings about this one, Paul. Curious to hear your thoughts on this. As an action sequence, I thought this was brilliant. It was devastating. It was tragic. It was exciting. I had such a layered experience to this because... A lot of times with action scenes, it's it's heroes fighting villains, and you're just thinking, cool, you know, like, you know, villains doing bad stuff, heroes going to stop them, that's great. It, it, it's, a, it's a victory for heroes and a, a victory for the innocents in the MCU. Wonderful. This is very different, because you have, obviously, Wakanda does not deserve to be attacked. You don't necessarily hate the attackers in the way you normally do with the villain, because it's, just, it's a completely different set of circumstances. The entire existence of this moment just feels tragic and so and i i think the movie does a really good job of leaning into that like yes there is spectacle and yes there is cool action stuff you know cool action beats that are a part of this but it never loses sight like it never feels like it's just meant to be spectacular you are meant to feel like this is just really really bad and that's what comes across in this. And so I I like the way the tone of this sequence really honors the feeling that I think they, Ryan Coogler and company want, want us to have in this where I have a little bit of trouble. And I do love that, um, by the way, it it is beautiful that Ramonda's last act is saving Riri Williams like that. It's just incredible. And and it's so true to that character that when, you know, she talks about, she has given everything for Wakanda. Well, she gives the last thing she can, which is her own life, to save somebody who's not even Wakanda, just an innocent life. Um, and what she and what Wakanda and we talk about showing who you are, who we are. Um, we are not the people, or certainly not anymore, where uh, our king, my husband, would kill his own brother to protect our secrets and, and leave uh, a nephew behind. Um, that's not what that wasn't what we were about or it wasn't what we should have been about and we changed and now for Ramonda and who she is and what she's about she's going to put the life of this 19 year old girl above her own and so that part of it is is beautiful and and as I said just noble heroic and I, I love that ending for Ramonda where it, it's a little complicated for me is that Namor kills her with such a direct hit I know he's an antagonist, and I know that he, Namor does messed up stuff in the comic books, so I was prepared for it, and, and I knew what was coming. But 
at the same time, the way it was constructed, it's it's tough when like this is a character that I know going forward that they're going to ask me to like in these stories. And look, they don't even have to ask. I like him. I I, I still like him. I don't know why. Probably because of Tenoch Huerta uh, and his performance and the brilliant writing. But it's it's a little harder to do that when he just flat out directly assassinated Ramonda. It would be one thing if, you know, he was flooding the palace trying to kill Riri, but like he was going after Ramonda too. And he was very clear about that, even with his intention after it happened. And so that's where I'm a little bit like, don't have him straight up murder a character I love and then ask me to be a fan and, and root for and cheer for this guy when he's fighting alongside some Avengers or the Fantastic Four inevitably in one of these stories. Sometimes I, and I honestly, it's not similar effect, but totally different contexts from even some of the stuff that I had issues with with Wanda in, in Multiverse of Madness. Not to the right. same extent because the context is definitely different and it's much better handled in this story uh, than a lot of stuff I didn't like about Multiverse of Madness. But it is still that issue of, yeah, we need to have a morally complex character who we can't always agree with and root for. But boy, I really wish he didn't just straight up murder Ramonda. Now, let me add some context and, and counter my own arguments. Like, okay, it's an act of war and, and they were at war and he wasn't the, and his people were not the first to spill blood in this war. All of that is true. And he even says, like, I warned you, I tried to do everything to, it shouldn't have been like this. And this isn't what, uh, this isn't necessarily what we wanted to do. This is what we had to do. And then he just puts the deadline on it. You have one week to join us, you know, bury your dead, mourn your losses and tell sure, uh, tell Shuri you're the queen now because he knows exactly what he's done, which is exactly what he intended to do, what he said he would do. So you could say from his own perspective, he's doing everything that he can to protect his people. He's doing everything he believes is necessary to protect his people. I don't necessarily have to agree with the move but it's still tough to just get around that uh, he straight up murdered a character we really like. And so that's, it is going to be tough to reconcile that for Namor, but I'm also content with never having a perfectly comfortable relationship with Namor because, well, never really did in the comic books either. Exactly. And I think, listen, I knew this was going to be, I knew you were going to have a problem with this. And it's like I did because you, again, I go back to my earlier comments, you identify with him because Nemor is complex. You don't agree with his actions, but he t- he warned her every single time. Though I don't, it's not right what he did. Yeah, but he told her. I mean, if you, I can't, you, I, I can't get away with murdering somebody because it's like, hey man, I warned him like three times that I was going to murder him. So like, right, right. But she knew what she was dealing with. He said, like, if you tell people about me. And, you know, and, and, and all this, and she, and the fact they came down and, and murdered. And that's the thing too, I think is, is what's interesting is that, you know, they, they do build it up the fact that, you know, she sent her to come down and retrieve her. And, 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 and it's like, and he, and he told her, I have your daughter where, you know, where he was trying to do, I mean, again, peacefully, they drew first blood and then he went too far. It's, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's kind of one of those things where. It was he. He never was in the right, but she didn't do things the right way either. He was more in the wrong than she was in that sense. But not even she was wrong. But like again, like the fact they killed well, Atlant- or Yeah, she wasn't. Ahead. Look, she wasn't wrong. I mean, at that point, Namor had made it clear like he wasn't just going to let Shuri and Riri go. 
Um, right. Like, even right. though, yes, Shuri volunteered to go because she wanted to meet with him, but she wasn't free to go after that meeting was done. And, and yeah. so I think that, you know, yes, that's the tragedy of it, right? Both of them are just trying to protect their people. And, you know, Ramonda is trying to protect her daughter. That's why she sends Nakia in there. The situation escalates as it inevitably would. And then we get this and, and that that triggers the violence between um, Talokan and Wakanda. But the violence was already coming because Namor had already right. promised it. Namor was basically saying, you need to join me uh, in inflicting violence upon others or I will inflict violence upon you. That's really not a <laughs> that's not a fair choice that he ever gave to Ramonda or Shuri or anyone in Wakanda. And so it's look, it's it's part of the deal with Namor. I'm fully aware of it. But usually with Namor, when stuff like this happens, even in the comic books, there's a bit more of the moral gray to it. And this one is a little bit too close. It's too dark of gray for me. It's too close to black for me when it's just the straight up direct hit. So it's not it's not that he shouldn't have a have any responsibility for Ramonda's death cuz yeah, he probably should have that. They're at war. It's really just more of the the way that it was done where it's just so undeniable that it was that direct hit. So I might have modified how that happened. Um but nevertheless, the the end result though is Namor was going to be held responsible uh by Shuri and so I guess if you could say, well, if, he, if he's if he's responsible for it, let him be responsible all the way and let's actually deal with that. Um, and, and I think that is really what it uh, that's what it comes down to. And, and that's the ultimate empathy and compassion that Shuri gives him at the end is the opportunity to yield when it's like he she knows exactly what he did and who he took from her and still is able to grant him uh, some form of uh, some form of mercy and because it's just that understanding of, look, we we went to war. It's tragic that we did. And we did each side did things that we wouldn't have want, you know, are not happy with. Although I think Namor did way more <laughs> than what Condens did. But look, again, that is that's the complexity of the character. So for those of you listening to this, if you don't have as much experience with Namor and you have a very complicated relationship with what happened, uh, welcome to the club, because Namor did drown a bunch of Wakandans as well in the comic books. So, like, there's he's done some bad stuff in the comic mm-hmm. books, and he did mm-hmm. uh, he he obviously did a bad thing here, and it's just it's that much more painful when it's a character that we were already big fans of, but then we just became even bigger fans of that character because of everything she got to do in this movie, as powered by um, just a. a, a Really wonderful performance, one of the best we've ever seen in the MCU by uh, by Angela Bassett, and it's not done. We will still see her uh, one more time spiritually before uh, this is all said and done. But now we get uh, we get another funeral. Uh, we saw a funeral earlier for T'Challa. Now we have one for Ramonda, and we see the full weight of Shuri's loss just written all over the face of Letitia Wright. And, you know, while we're praising performances, yes, uh, hers also deserves praise. Like, she is really good in this, and there's a lot that she has to carry in this movie, and, and her performance really... Um, her performance is is pretty special, um, and, and I think that it's one that you know, could also deserve some recognition. But, yeah, I mean, I, I just think that what she has to do in, in this scene and, and what she's communicating in this scene, it's, it's very subtle. It's not, 
It's not loud. It's not big, but it is angry. It is a, a sense of hopelessness. Like when M'Baku tries to kind of connect with her a little bit, and this, by the way, when I talk about expanding our idea of M'Baku, this was a scene where Winston Duke really brought it because he mentions like how he had promised her brother that he would look after her and you know that he would be there for her, but he actually needs her counsel. What should he do that now all the tribal leaders want to send all their people to Jabari land to protect them? Um, and of course, everybody is going to go to Jabari land. It's funny how things turn out. So the Jabari were the outcasts in Wakanda when we first met them in Black Panther. And now a handful of years later, everybody in Wakanda is reaching out to the Jabari for help for uh, for protection. But um, speaks to the evolution of that relationship and also just the severity and, and danger of this moment. But I liked this reconciliation between these two, like the way that uh, even Shuri points out the insult of uh, uh, of that Mbaku gave her back at the uh, at Warrior Falls in the first film. You know, the child who scoffs at tradition, and now he tells her, "Well, the world's taken too much from you for, for you to ever be considered uh, to still be considered a child." And when he's trying to uh, talk to her to see what Shuri's where Shuri's leaning, how her heart feels. Shuri mentions that the last person on this earth who really knew her is gone and her heart has gone with her, her heart has gone with Ramonda. And that is the, that's the anger that's there for Shuri. That's the sense of total loss of total hopelessness that, uh, you know, the anger that she mentioned of, you know, if she thinks about her brother's passing for too long, well, now it's, it's reached another level because now she's lost her mother as well. And that's where it, it's really, been this um that's where this struggle is is reaching another level for her and and that hopelessness and that the way that she is responding to her own grief again very different than her mother did but now her mother isn't there to help her with it or guide it so it's just that anger that is uh that is festering and obviously that we see the way the movie you know deals with that with shuri as it carries forward but I, i really liked this scene uh, for what Shuri was doing, but also really, again, just adding more depth and, and more layers to M'Baku at this point in the story. Yeah, I echo everything you said on that one. So then it's time to uh, plan on, you know, Wakanda needs new ways to defend itself. They're going to need a Black Panther. So it is time to finally synthesize the heart-shaped herb and because of the gift that Namor gave Shuri that has some of the fibers of the vibranium plant, that gives them a chance to create that synthetic herb, and they successfully do. We also see them in this montage working on some new armor for Riri Williams that we are going to see. And I think that this, when we get to this moment where Shuri has the, uh, where Shuri takes the heart-shaped herb, and it's very clear, like, one quick aside on this, like I'm not sure why they they really hid or tried to sort of pretend they were hiding that Shuri was going to be Black Panther. Like it's the movie doesn't hide it once you start watching it, and this is who becomes the new Black Panther in the comic books. So it is interesting to me that Marvel felt like this needed to be a, a mystery to preserve for the film. Although as we got closer to the movie, they started being uh, a, a lot less protective of that secret. Um, it seemed to be fairly obvious that, you know, that the most obvious choice was going to be made. But I, I think 
one of my question marks for Shuri was, of course, yes, the comic books did it this way. And so that makes sense to have the MCU do it the same way. But as far as in the story, how do you get to Shuri being the new Black Panther? Because she hadn't really been set up in that sort of warrior context, she was in many ways the opposite of that in the first Black Panther movie up until the very end. This movie was really going to have to earn her taking that mantle, and I think they did, and I and I like the way that they did it because it wasn't in a way that, again, as I said, established her as the best warrior. It was an emotional choice, an emotional perspective, and also... She's the only one who could create a new Black Panther because she's the one who figures out how to synthesize the heart-shaped herb. So the way that it comes about, um, and also the way it's emotionally grounded in the story, I I think is where that choice really works. So it doesn't just work because, oh, that's what they did in the comic book, so that's what we do here. You have to earn it in the story, and I wasn't sure how they would be able to do that, uh, but they did it here. But before we even see her put on a new Black Panther suit, what happens when you take the heart-shaped herb? You have to go to the ancestral plane, and Nakia, who's there, is calling out for Ramonda to come visit her daughter. But when Shuri arrives in the ancestral plane, the person sitting on the throne, it's not her brother, it's not her mother. It is, surprise, surprise, Injadaka, Killmonger, Michael B. Jordan, in this movie, and... I was so excited about this. First, I was so excited that Michael B. Jordan was back in this franchise, and they did it in the perfect way. No, they didn't resurrect Killmonger and have him be alive again, having him be on the ancestral plane. And look, it makes sense, because for a minute there, granted, I know T'Challa wasn't really dead and he never yielded, but he was recognized and crowned as and on the throne as the king of Wakanda. He was the Black Panther, uh, even if that time was was very, very brief and not entirely valid. So him having a place there on the ancestral plane, it checks out. But then also this is going into Shuri's process for grief, even saying like, you called me here. When she's wondering, what are you doing here? You called me here. Whether she did so consciously or not, doesn't matter. That anger, subconsciously, she called him there because... She wants to do things like she like he did, or at least she thinks he does she does. There's a part of her, that anger that is within her that wants to handle things the way that Killmonger did. And I think there's a part of her subconsciously that wanted to face that. Because even he says, like, you didn't even believe in the ancestral plane, but yet here I am. So I, I'm only here because this is what you want, this is what you need. And he goes through it all. And once again, Killmonger's making some great points when he points out that, hey, King T'Chaka probably would have killed the scientist. He killed his own brother. Fair point. And then Mm -hmm. he talks about how T'Challa, well, he was too noble. He wouldn't have necessarily done that. But, and it goes into that, it, it, but for Killmonger, he would do whatever was necessary to protect his people or however he felt, even though Shuri rightfully points out what you did was selfish. You took the heart-shaped herb for yourself and burned the rest. That's why I couldn't save my brother I like that Killmonger here in the Ancestral Plane is, is giving T'Challa some respect as the mutual respect that they had for each other by the end of that story. But at the same time, like his philosophy, his worldview, his perspective, it is what it is. And it's the perfect thing for Shuri to kind of challenge herself with. 
I don't think her intention is to challenge herself. I think her intention is almost to, it's that anger that's driving her so much that she wants to grant herself the permission to you to lash out in that anger, respond to the anger that has been right there at the center of her grief for the loss of her brother and now the loss of her mother. And the difference between the loss of her mother and the loss of her brother is losing her mother gave her a specific target. Her brother, it was an illness, an illness that he largely kept to himself. You can't get revenge on an illness. But if your mother was killed by a person like Namor, that is someone you can seek revenge against. And so when you start talking about wanting to burn down the entire world, well, you start with the person that you really want to uh, get revenge on, and that is Namor for her. And this was a, a really powerful scene, and I like that we don't even see the end of the conversation. It kind of we don't know how she responded to it and how she responded to being confronted by Killmonger in the ancestral plane. And she's even hiding it from Nakia and Riri, like who did you see? And she's not going to share who that was. And that scene, I mean, it was just a, a shock to see Killmonger again. But it, it was it, it fits so well in the story. It doesn't come across as we just had to find a way to get Michael B. Jordan back into this story. It was it really spoke to Shuri's experience and what she had been hinting at her emotional experience was all along in this movie. Yeah, I I was so surprised to see this and it fits so much thematically because he represents both Shuri and Namor and the fact that, you know, she he's the, he is essentially the insight that she needs to kind of basically get her down eventually when she sees this, um, where she's going down, you know, what that road she's going down and how she's so into the weeds right now of her own grief and hatred and bitterness that she, she can't even see the fact that he's telling her you're the same per you're the same thing as me. She refuses to see that. Um, and, and, and really, I mean, it, it, again, beautifully crafted story because you see where she would think the differences are, but there, but she, again, you're so blind that there's similarities and that she can't, she's so blind, you know, she's so full of her own hatred. She just can't see past it, but you can see why she would see past it because they are vastly different, but they're also, he brings up great points that she's just not listening to him. And I love that. I love the fact that she goes into it. Like, no, like I'm, I'm I'm ignoring what he's saying, but really I am what he is saying, and I'm going in and I'm I'm like I, I'm being kind of a, a hothead, and I'm, I'm I'm doing the wrong thing essentially, and I don't know it just there's and this is where we talk about the, 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 that dark tone, Sean earlier. Mm-hmm. This is that dark tone turning into you know coming back, and it fits and it really sets up that dark tone like. She's doing this wrong. So it's like one of the first times where I'm like, oh, our protagonist is doing something wrong, essentially. Like she's going into battle for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow. Like like basically she's reacting to him, to, to Namor, the wrong way. And we're getting this as like it, – it, it, again, not the typical – popcorn bring your family to the movie theater kind of story where your protagonist is actually doing the wrong thing you know and it's like and it's the end battle 
Yeah. It's 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 kind of awesome. Like I I love I love how beautifully it's crafted because when I watched it again the second time, I'm like, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm like, this is not this is not good. No, <laughs> you know? No, it's not. And and I think that that speaks to that moment. Like it it is the undercurrent there. Like it's why her becoming Black Panther, it doesn't feel as triumphant as it could, yes, right? Exactly. Or, or you would normally expect it to. Like, I mean, I, I don't know. I've seen the movie a couple of times, saw it opening night and again on Saturday morning. And so maybe it was just the the crowds I was in. I don't know. And I'm sure every, everybody had a different experience with their respective audience. But like when she puts on the Black Panther suit and mm. she's there with the tribal council in, you know, in Jabari land, like she does the the, the flip down in there and is wearing the suit, like it doesn't draw like the big cheers that you normally get when somebody first puts on the superhero suit and appears when we get to uh, the big battle and the Ibambe chants start. And those have become iconic now in Marvel lore from uh, infinity, especially infinity war and Endgame, Right. And, and so that feels like a big cheer moment in the MCU, but I, I mean, and maybe in your uh, your theaters out there, dear listeners, that you got some cheers, but I didn't in my theater, and I, and I don't necessarily think I didn't that either. Yeah, and, but the cheers d- wouldn't necessarily fit because mm. these are not good things. Like it, it, yes, it is good that Shuri can become Black Panther and that somebody else can take on the mantle to become a protector of Wakanda, but all of her reasons and where she's at right now, emotionally, philosophically, all of those things, like that's still very there and very present in the story. And to that, that's so not what you normally get in these movies. As, as you said, usually, especially when it comes time for third act, yes, our heroes do make mistakes and do things that they shouldn't do. But usually by the time we get to the third act, it's like they acknowledge that and they're, they've become better and they're moving forward. Shuri is not better yet as this is happening. Like it's still getting, things are still getting worse before they're going to get better. And so that pacing is, is a little bit different or very different than what we're used to. And and it does change the way that I feel that I, you know, I don't feel about these, you know, the reveal of her as black Panther and the, the wind up to the final battle. I don't feel that way about this action sequence as I do other ones, but even though it's, not an entirely comfortable feeling. I like that it's different. I, I like that it's a change to it. And I, and I think it, what it does is it keeps things true to this story. And what's happening here is we have two, uh, two nations, two civilizations that we admire, respect and love on, on so many levels and they're battling each other. And she's like, everything about this sucks because these two should not be at war with each other, but they are. And this is just where circumstances have have and certain actions have led them up until this point. And this obviously is not what we want for Shuri, because we know this is not what her mother would have wanted for her. This is not what her brother would have wanted for her. This is not really what she would want for herself, but for, you know, the grief and, and the anger within that grief that is consuming her at, at this point. And so it that undercurrent is there throughout all of this, but there are still some elements to it that are just kind of straight up awesome. Like for the Wakandans that who don't necessarily know and, and see what, what Shuri is going through or experiencing them being inspired and moved by the sight of a new black Panther. I love 
This was like badass, old school, like 80s, early 90s action. The strength test with Umbaku and uh, and Shuri to, for him to know that it's not just a suit, that the heart-shaped herb is, is working and she's got super strength with the little arm wrestling match. That was awesome. That just felt classic. I totally love that. I, I loved and that was like a a brief little happy moment within this. But at the same time, like when Mbaku and Shuri talk uh, privately, it's clear that her anger is still there. And when they're about to go off to battle and Nakia just tries to help her, they takes her hands and, and tries to help her focus, but then also tries to ask, like, who did you see in there? And Shuri is still not going to not going to talk about it. And it's really more about now we need to get uh, she wants her revenge on Namor. And how is she going to do that? Well, she wants to draw him out and then dry him out because they reach the conclusion that if he is uh, not uh, in water or still wet from that water, that he will uh, that he will lose his power to some extent. And that ultimately proves to be true. And how are they going to draw him out? Well, a battle in the middle of the ocean. So it's the new Black Panther, the Dora Milaje, the Jabari, so many other soldiers from Wakanda and the various tribes. It's Ironheart is there. And then also we get to, uh, and then we get to, uh, eventually in this sequence, we get to the Midnight Angels. And so for all of these characters coming together, and as I said, you get the Ibambe chant and you get, uh, everything that normally feels so big and triumphant in these uh, in these sequences, it doesn't feel that way. But I, I think they do a really good job of managing the tone of that, mm, um, that it's not really what we would have wanted or thought or expected from this. Like, there's still cool spectacle in it, like Ironheart in the suit looks cool, and there's some great shots for that. When we see the Black Panther along the side of their ship, like, battling... Uh, some of the people from Talokan, all of that looks great. Another great battle now with the the even the odds of the exosuit for the Midnight Angels for Okoye uh, against Atuma. That rematch is really, really cool. And then Namora versus Ironheart. All of that is working. And so mm-hmm. as we get this big action sequence, it all has the spectacle that we are that we are used to and that we normally like. And I do enjoy it visually on that level. But it never supersedes the real tragedy that is at the heart of this entire sequence, which is that this yeah. conflict even exists in the first place, and the worry that we have of the path that Shuri is going down. Yeah, you know, to kind of come up with all the the, the regular stuff, because I think the big stuff is the, is the main battle between Shuri and, and Namor. I, I loved all this. I love the fact that the they lured him out. Um, you know, with this, it's a little more smaller scale, if you will, with the, with the end battle scene, because I think that the attack on Wakanda was incredible. It was very intense and like just whoa. This was a little. More, it felt like almost like a callback to like Star Wars a little bit, Empire Strikes Back, where like the main battle was on Hoth, and then like everything else a little bit smaller. Not quite that extent, but that same idea. Um, it definitely had that same idea of like a third act of star or third act Marvel film, but the scale just felt like it, the, it was bigger during that time than this time. But I like that. I like the fact that it was a little more personal. Um, side note, I thought Ironheart's armor looked really awesome on screen. I thought I was, I had not seen anything on, on any, I saw toys, whatever. I'm like, yeah, it looks okay. But I thought it was a really cool design like that. Loved all the fight scenes. I love the, 
uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the I, I have to call him Lanny, is it, you know, whatever. Um, you know, the whole fight scene at the very end was great, but I just, I felt like it was all earned. It was, it was, but to me, um, really quickly, I, I don't know if you got this to, if you noticed this, the end battle scene was not filmed in IMAX, but the other stuff was on the, all on that, that sequence. And it, when you go cut back and forth to it, Sean, it was interesting because it felt more, even more intimate when it was, it, this sounds really oxymoronish, but it felt more intimate, the smaller scale when it was the smaller, the screen was smaller between uh, Namor and, and, and Black Panther compared to like the big grand battle scene. So it was just interesting to go when it was cutting back and forth, it would be bigger to smaller, but it kind of worked in an artistic way. I felt at least I did. I'm not sure if that was intentional or not a budget thing, but I thought in a, from an artistic standpoint, I thought it actually worked. Yeah. I, I thought the juxtaposition of those sequences, like once it evolved to, and, and yeah, Black Panther or Shuri was, was off on that, you know, Royal Talon fighter with like, with, you know, the, the heaters all turned up on, yeah. uh, on Namor, like, and having the bigger battle still going on. And I agree, like it, the big battle looked kind of small because it was just focused on such a small area on that exactly. ship. Although, yeah, yeah. it's also like, you know, the battleground is kind of the entire ocean at that point. Yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's, but I liked it though because you saw like, you know, the whales got to get involved in an even bigger way. And I'm a big fan of whales and, and their, their role in this movie. And, and so that part I, I liked, but the juxtaposition of this kind of illustrates, and I like that you kind of use the word uh, intimate because that was what I, my biggest, one of my biggest feelings that I came away with in watching this movie and this action sequence really illustrates it because you've got the big spectacle of, you know, the battle on the ship, go, cutting back and forth with this very personal one-to-one battle of Shuri and Namor. And, you see the anger that she feels like I'm the black Panther and I'm here for retribution. And Mm -hmm. when they get to the desert or, you know, that desert beach and we get to really the fighting and we talk about the visceral fight scenes in this, Holy crap. I mean, the scratching, the, the clawing, the, the stabbing, like it's just all, it's brutal. There's a great shot that like a slow-mo where you get like Namor's back throwing a punch and like Shuri kind of ducking that. Like just, I, I loved it. the, that fight was just so brutal and just, it was an angry fight. It, it, both of these characters are angry. Both of these characters have been hurt and the, the anger plays out. It's not either one doing their best job from a technical perspective on their fighting. It's just, it is raw. And I, I think that is where, it, uh, that's where it really worked. But in the midst of all of that, we're finding out what was the truth for Shuri in the, in the ancestral plane was her telling Killmonger that she's not her brother and, you know, basically is, is looking forward to, uh, you know, forcing her foe to, uh, to basically be begging for mercy as he, as she exacts her revenge. Her plan is to kill Namor. That's what she's there to do. And when she finally has that opportunity, it's, that's where Ramonda comes in from the ancestral plane telling Shuri to show him who you are. And that is where she gives him the opportunity to yield with the promise that Wakanda will help keep their the secrets of Talokan safe and protect uh, protect its people, and Namor uh, yields. And what that juxtaposition of the way all of that was constructed, I think, really encapsulates what was 
what it worked so well across this entire film. And this is something that I think is particularly unique to Ryan Coogler. Not that he's the only one to have done it and in, in, within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but he's got some of the best examples of it within his two films in this franchise is being able to hold on to and preserve the intimate within the spectacle that the stories get very, very big and yet always still feel small. And I say that in the best possible way. I don't say that in the way of you're trying to tell a big story and you're not getting it. No, all of the big stuff, all of the spectacle, it's still there and it works, and it's amazing, fantastic. It's all of the things that we want it to be as a big superhero tentpole and and all of those things. It's there on all of those levels, and yet everything still feels so close, so emotionally grounded, and as I said, intimate. It's about relationships between characters, perspectives being shared between characters, and that is something that Ryan Coogler is particularly skilled at as a filmmaker and it is something that is it's really really special and that's part of why i really hope that ryan coogler continues on in the mcu i know kevin feige said he hasn't talked to ryan coogler about secret wars well i hope they start talking about it Um, seriously but look if it's not ryan coogler i'd still be happy with peyton reed more on that when we talk about ant-man and the wasp quantum mania most likely but Look, I I think Ryan Coogler has this unique ability to keep things very personal, emotional, grounded, intimate, even as stories get bigger and bigger and bigger and more spectacular and more fantastical, that the heart of the stories just remains true and focused all the way throughout. And this action sequence is a perfect example of it because, yes, there's a lot of big, crazy, cool things happening, but you know that lives are at stake. You know that a soul is at stake within this battle, and you never lose, uh, certainly I didn't as an audience member, never lost sight of that because of the way that Ryan Coogler put it together. And obviously the tremendous performances by the actors. Yeah, I... You know, as we're you know going long here, and I'll I'll, I'll wrap up, people. I promise. Um, I'm just gonna say this, but the, the end battle scene is maybe one of my favorites in the MCU. Um, and quick side note: when he says "Imperious Rex" in his native tongue, I lost my goddamn. I knew mind. you would. I, dude, I, I was the only one in both my theaters being like, I, went, I told I was like, yes, like I was, I God, that that's. But what's beautiful is it's him. Like it's it just encapsulates you know everything uh with he with him right there and you know that's him in his native tongue you know saying something but then it's it's also easter egg it's like it's brilliant it's brilliant chef's kiss thank you ryan coogler um so but yeah you again that brutality of that end scene the m fight scene so good and the and the implications of what happens afterwards i think the message and the theme sean of the differences we have cause us to fight, but really we are all the same in the end. And that to me was my, the message that I got from it and how that we can be, we, there will be victors in these wars, whatever the physical wars or words of, you know, words of wars or, or words of war, war of words, excuse me. Um, all that, but we are all, have you know we all have come from you know 
our our backgrounds shape us and we still have feelings we still have love we still you know, have loss and there was again i thought it was ironic with the messaging of of again with with even with um you know, Shuri, the actress herself and, and, and everything. I, I thought it was very interesting, the message they were sending of, you know, of, of just how everyone is the same. And and we all have these, you know, at least that's the message that I got. And again, I, my met, what I read out of it was going to be different than a lot of other people will. And maybe that wasn't the intention at all. But that's what I took out of it. Well, I mean, that goes back to what T'Challa said in the mid credit scene of the, of the first one, just... You know, there's more that unites us than divides us, right? And exactly. Like, why is building bridges instead of building walls, right? So we're building barriers. Yeah. Like, I, I think that there is a part of that. And I think we see that, right? Like, everybody has is prioritizing protecting their people, their family in, in, in different ways. And obviously, the different choices we make along that path, you know, can have tragic consequences as we see throughout the story. So nobody's perfect at it, obviously. Uh, and... um I think that even those who have the best intentions can still end up having destructive tendencies. And, and so like there is, and it's just an awareness of, of everyone to, you know, have that ability to, to reflect and, and see themselves through to, you know, the better versions of themselves and, and the version of themselves that can see, uh, you know, have honestly promote the idea of, of empathy. Cause it's a pretty good thing um, uh, when we can all do that. But I think that that's really where this story goes into is it just it reflects into a lot of the the tragedy that we that we bring upon ourselves and and, and, and it, even even when we have the best of intentions even when we have noble intentions that we can become uh misguided and, and make mistakes so that we can sometimes sometimes allow the ends to justify uh, the means in in ways that we shouldn't and that is certainly something that uh, was playing into this story for uh, for these characters, but you know the the resolution uh, I think works in this because it doesn't treat it as an easy resolution. It's you know Namor yielding in that moment. It is Shuri not giving into the anger, not get, giving into the darkest parts of herself, but actually showing him who she is, of who Shuri was all of her life, not in these in this last year where she's been. Uh, as angry as she has ever been, um, but really looking at who Shuri was this whole time. Uh, and that's the side of herself that she ultimately gets to show by being merciful toward Namor. And so we get this resolution. There is a truce that is called between Wakanda and uh, and Talokan, but I love Namor's explanation of it because this is Namor. So when we talk about our relationship with Namor, this is it. So even in what looks to be a peaceful resolution, when Namor is asked about it by Namora, and he talks about, well, look, she could have beat me in that moment. Uh, she could have killed me, had every reason to kill me in that moment, and she didn't. And it's better to make this peace with her now because ultimately our goal is to, our goal is still to wage war on the surface world before they attack us. Everybody in the world now is looking at Wakanda. Wakanda is going to be attacked, and they will turn to us for help. So Namor believes he will still get what he ultimately wants, which is Wakanda and Talokan teaming up to take on the rest of the world. And we will see if that is ultimately what happens at some point uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So 
uh yeah there there's uh there's more war coming not just the secret ones uh in oh, the marvel yeah. cinematic universe so it's the next phase baby yeah so let's talk about some other uh things to uh finish up here so riri williams is uh is leaving her car has been restored but uh she's leaving without the suit that she just made in wakanda sure he can't let her keep it i figure that's just uh, that i kind of la- i chuckled that because i was like okay well just an excuse for her to make a new suit in uh in her own show fine um uh mbaku challenging for the throne love that uh although i also kind of wouldn't have minded a koye challenging for the throne but mbaku as a leader of the jabari and everything like he's it's time for him to uh, challenge for the throne we don't know that he won by the way uh we just know that he challenged for it at warrior falls Uh, shuri is not uh, evidently it would seem anyway not challenging to become queen she is black panther but she is not challenging to become queen of wakanda um, then we catch up with Okoye, who is uh, retrieving Ross from the imprisonment that uh, director Dave Fontaine was going to put upon him. Uh, Shuri returns to Haiti or visits Haiti to see Nakia and go through that ritual that her mother was describing earlier on in the film. Um, before we go, I, I do just want to touch on Okoye and the Midnight Angels and uh, Aneka and Io and all of that. So, I've got mixed feelings about this. Uh, I love Okoye and was even down with the idea of her being Black Panther, but the Midnight Angels thing, the Midnight Angel in the comic books, the two original members are Aneka and Ayo, who have a relationship with each other, which this movie kind of uh, sort of tacks on in that Disney way of we can have characters be in same-sex relationships, but only in very, very small ways tacked on at the very end. I mean, I know they do. There is that moment between Ayo and... Aneka, like where Ayo told, you know, said, I told you to leave those at home with the new knives that Shuri had given Aneka. But then just like the, the the acknowledgement of their relationship in a very tacked on way at the end, that I didn't totally love. Um, and I also felt like just as characters, I don't know where you do it. This movie is two hours and 40 minutes. So maybe it's a Disney Plus series for those characters, but they expanded the Midnight Angels in the comic books eventually, and I hope that they do in the MCU because I feel like Io deserves to be in one of those suits. Although, if she's going to become the new general and leader of the Dora Milaje and get a big role doing that, then I'm all for that. Um, and Okoye, look, to give the, that character an opportunity to, to progress and evolve into a different role as one of the Midnight Angels, okay, that's fine. I, I'll take it. I, I do wish that Okoye, we got a little bit more of Okoye's own grief because she also loved T'Challa very, very deeply. And um, I I did feel like while I I love the way they honored it with Ramonda and uh, and Shuri and also Nakia to an extent, I I felt like Okoye didn't get as much of her journey as she could have in this. I mean, she was still fully realized like as a character and and still part of the ensemble. And and I, I meant everything I still said about the way Ryan Coogler gives space for all or most of the characters in his movies in, in a way that few Marvel directors ever, ever have, or in a way on a level, I think that no Marvel director has ever done. Um, this was an example where, again, it's just me liking a character so much and, and would have wanted, uh, just would have wanted a little bit more. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that for, for these characters, for, for this story, again, I could have loved, could have, could have used a little bit more for Ayo, Aneka, and and also Okoye, but what we did get, I, I liked. I think, I guess you could argue Ayo got the least because yeah, she really we didn't see as much of Florence Kasumba in this one. 
but I mean, I don't know where you, I don't know where you find more space for it. Cause there's just so many characters in this one. And I think Paul's on mute. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just saying that I, I'm, I'm don't have much to add other than what you said. I think you're on the money on that one. All right, so the end of our movie, as I said, Shuri has gone to Haiti, and we talk about the silence. So when Shuri is just sitting alone, um, going through that ritual of you know burning what she wore to the funerals for her, for her brother, for her mother, that that's part of that transitional phase, you know, transitioning to a new phase in, in your relationship with those that you loved and lost, as her mother was talking about earlier in the story. Great performance moment by Letitia Wright. And I mean, just uh, a real challenge put in front of her by Ryan Coogler to really, after this incredibly large and simultaneously intimate story, though, like, how does that happen? Well, it happens when you close it out with a scene like this. And it was really, really moving. And we talked about how the silence over the Marvel Studios logo. And, you know, the silence here kind of at the end and just the the calm at the very end of this and just feeling that emotion and everything that uh, that obviously Letitia Wright would have really gone through as well as what her character is going through. And that being a representative of what so many in the making of this film uh, were going through and and the audience as well and, and bringing a close to this story that was a movie and also something else, something more. I mean, I know people have described it as a wake, as a funeral for Chadwick Boseman, and I don't entirely disagree with those descriptions, but I don't even know what to call this. It's a movie and so much more with Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and the way that Letitia Wright brought it to a close, uh, not even getting to the mid credit scene just yet. Um, it, it was a, a beautiful ending to this film. Yeah, I... Uh, yeah, I, the ending was powerful. Again, it's silent. Seeing those scenes, I, I, I got, I get, I got choked up both times, you know. And you identify with, you know, I mean, Sean and you and I both can, uh, you know, understand that ending, you know, you know, in a shared grief. And I can tell you that's, I, I can, I can sympathize and understand exactly what she's going through. You know what I mean? Yep. And it's, uh. For those of us who can unfortunately identify with that, it's uh, it, it's hard because you you you, pro, you project naturally what your own grief and what you you know onto that during those that moment, and it's just uh, it's hard. And it's, and to me, this movie is a masterpiece, um, MCU masterpiece. Um, I really do. I, I I thought so the first time. I wanted to see it the second time to confirm it, and it is confirmed. This, this is a masterpiece, and I I. It's not perfect, I guess, but I think it's it's borderline perfect, and well, I think it's yeah. I've got plenty of imperfect movies in my Marvel masterpiece collection. There and, you go. And yes, there you th- go. This yeah. will, this is one of them. none of them are perfect, by the way. But um, fair enough. And this one's uh pretty close, and uh, I, I think that it, it does. As I said, it's a movie and so much more, and it is just a really really beautiful story, beautifully told by Ryan Coogler, Joe Robert Cole. And just a, a remarkable cast um, who were all tasked with the impossible and yet somehow found a way to achieve it. And there is a mid credit scene. Let's talk about it. So we get, uh, I mean, as emotional of a, po- of a 
tag or mid or post credit scene as, as you could possibly imagine, even more so than you could imagine when Nakia joins Shuri on that beach, but Nakia is not alone. She has a six-year-old son of hers with her, and yes, that means exactly what you think it means. That is the son of T'Challa. So Tucson is his Haitian name, and after he confirms that Shuri can keep a secret, he his name is Prince T'Challa, son of King T'Challa, and this one just... It, it just rocked me and it's the performances like Letitia Wright just she did such a beautiful job of just looking at this kid and you know the the sister seeing her brother uh in that kid was just mm-hmm. really powerful and then you know we talk about okay the recasting issue and, and T'Challa as a character should live on and look I agree with most of those sentiments I really do and now we have a way for T'Challa to live on. And I don't call this a, this isn't a cop-out. This isn't a, well, here's a T'Challa for everybody. But mm-hmm. it's the idea of legacy. And it's the idea of, you know, passing on to the next generation. But it's not just passing on the name. It's passing on the best of what T'Challa was taught and what he learned in his journey in that first film. And how do we know that? Well, the one who really inspired T'Challa in that was Nakia, that child, Prince T'Challa's mother. And so, and and took him from Wakanda because mom and dad agreed that it would be be better to raise him away from that mantle. Doesn't mean he'll never carry it, but raise him away from that mantle, away from the throne, away from those expectations. Um, And, you know, T'Challa even prepared them for, King T'Challa prepared his son and Nakia for his eventual death. And I, I just think all of that is, it's so beautiful. And look, the MCU being a thing that continues to just go on and on in really fun and interesting and emotional and beautiful and spectacular ways. Yeah, the day may come when we may see Prince T'Challa, a, a grown-up Prince yeah. T'Challa taking on the mantle of Black Panther. That's feasible uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I do hope that we get to see it, but I don't even think that's really the point of the scene in that moment. The point of that scene is not to say, here's your black, here's your new Black Panther in 10 years. Um, the, the point of this is just that something beautiful, one more beautiful gift was given to the world by uh, King T'Challa, uh, along with Nakia in this, uh, you know, beautiful young Prince T'Challa and, you know, a, a chance for, you know, a chance for more family for Shuri, you know, to see her brother, but also see this entirely, you know, new person, her brother living on in this entirely new person. But really, you know, it's not just about her brother and her, her brand new nephew. Yeah. I, I love this lot. The message, the idea of the reality of, you know, my, my buddy, uh, Scott Rifen, um, once told me we were talking about, you know, kids one day and, um, you know, or, you know, whatever. And he said, uh, you know, the ch- kids are here, the, our children are here to replace us. And, you know, and that's kind of what you raise them for. And, you know, and I, I, I like that. I, I thought that was a very interesting thing. I didn't think of it like that ever really, you know, and, you know, really is not to replace us, you know, literally, but the figuratively. Right. And, there is that idea of like, this is a reality. It's it, he, rep- you know, this, um, this new T'Challa Jr. essentially, or whatever, um, 
he represents the the, the new and and that's going to happen one day to all of us you know and there's just something really just the reality and poetic of it and the idea of legacy and and everything of, of this movie is is a perfect way to end it and the last thing i'll say does the keep in 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 paul herman form is that when he goes to keep, keep a secret, I'm like, if he throws electricity from his fingers, I'm gonna lose my goddamn mind because, because <laughs> like, because there's an art, there's there isn't not obviously the characters, you know, different mother, but the, there is a T'Challa, you know, child that is established and you know, and very loosely in the MC or Marvel comics, and that a very underrated Avengers next movie, movie uh, by the way, I love that movie. Um, but I'm like, if he does that, I'm going to just do a backflip and just be like, I can't believe they did it. Because can you keep a secret? I'm like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And I'm like, okay, that makes more more sense. Um, I did almost lose it, but, um, but yeah, in all seriousness, I thought this was a, a brilliant way to end the movie as well with that. And, and obviously no other end credit scene. The mid credit was perfect. You ended on that. You're good to go. Yeah. I don't think there, none of the other stuff would have fit, right? None of the yeah. other, and, and they already did enough stuff of exciting future in the MCU. Riri Williams exactly. has got yeah. her thing going on. Mbaku challenging for the throne. Okoye now is a midnight angel and, and all of those things. They've done enough things in, within the story to plant seeds for the future. This would not have been the right movie to say, here's what's up with Secret Wars or, or whatever. This would not have been, this was not that film. And so this was the perfect mid credit scene and so that's why if you already got the perfect one you don't need to add another one and, and so i think you, you just couldn't have done it any better than that and you know the last thing i i want to say because i i know that this is a topic that's maybe on some people's minds although it seems like disney got lucky and most people forgot like i know that there are speaking of letitia wright and this mantle for her as as Black Panther and and the platform because you know a couple of years ago she didn't do the best job of using her platform when she shared a video that had uh, bad enough you know a lot of misinformation about vaccines that began with a guy saying I don't understand vaccines medically but and then continued which is not a video worth sharing um, but worse than that you know as the video went on shared some very hateful and, and ignorant rhetoric or especially around the trans community. And that was something that Letitia Wright never really fully addressed. It seemed like when she offered her, you know, half apology tweet that it was more about the her concerns about the vaccine, but she never really denounced some of the more hateful views and, and rhetoric that was expressed uh, in that video. And so I know that obviously disappointed and, and hurt a lot of people, and she never fully answered for it. And uh, that's certainly been a, a disappointment. And I, I think that I don't know that she shares any of those views because she never really, again, denounced them. I, I certainly hope that she doesn't and that w going forward now with an even bigger platform now as a full-on, full-fledged Marvel superhero with the success of this movie and the love of what she did because she did give an, an unbelievable uh, performance in this movie that if her, that, you know, she would, if she chooses to use her platform on social media going forward, that it's to share, you know, messages of of love and and not anything, uh, and certainly not anything hateful or hurtful. Uh, and so that that's certainly what I hope for her and and for all of us, frankly, going forward. So um, I, I didn't want to go through this spoiler review and and not acknowledge that and not acknowledge that as a as a concern because I I know that it's it is out there for some, but 
you know, she's never shared anything like that since. And so hopefully that's not what was really in her heart. And uh, we don't see her using her platform in that way uh, going forward. But for now, again, with with the hope that, you know, she's learned and, and grown from that experience that, yeah, she will, you know, be you know, she she will represent this role as she did on screen with just a, a fantastic performance that really did inspire hope and love and, and and empathy. And as so many of the actors did in this film and certainly uh, the rest of the crew and, and obviously Ryan Coogler at the helm who made something really, really beautiful uh, that uh, I, I think enriches those who get a chance to see it, including uh, Paul and I, and, and obviously I th- hope so. Uh, those of you who listen to this podcast that you didn't listen to a three and a half hour podcast about a Ooh. movie that you haven't seen. Um, but if you did, Thanks, uh, and, yeah. and go watch the movie. Um, it's shorter than this. It's much easier to get through than this podcast, I promise. So uh, thanks, everybody, for that. Make sure you check out Fanshow Plus at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts, MCU Fanshow Channel or uh, Fanshow Plus would be your search cues on that. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MCU Fanshow. Paul, where can these people find you? You can find me on Twitter. Both as long of the as people still-, still listening to the end of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter if it's still standing uh, when you listen to this podcast. Fair. Um, is at Herman Twenty Two with Two Ends, aka P Thug. Uh, please follow my uh, YouTube channel, The Comic Binge. Uh, yeah, we got some pod. We have some pod. I'm, it's late. I'm tired. Um, we do have some uh, Wakanda Forever content coming in a few weeks, but we have a plethora of MCU required reading videos to check out. So please check those out if you're excited for MCU uh, after watching Wakanda Forever. We got you covered uh, for all older stuff, and that uh, Wakanda Forever content will be coming soon. And you can find me on Twitter and, well, it still exists, and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.